Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Engaging the Phenomenon. And today we have a special panel of a group of awesome people. We got uh, Danny Silva, uh, Ryan Robbins, a.k.a. UFO Jesus, Joe Mergia, and Richard Dolan. Welcome, everybody. Thanks, James. Hey, James. Yeah, so this, this is a crash retrieval panel. So we're going to be discussing crash retrievals, but kind of anything that goes along with that. Um, so just, just to start, uh, you know, we'll go at where do people stand on crash retrievals just to uh, introduce the subject. So let's start with uh, Joe. Joe Mergia, where do you stand with UFO crash retrievals? So when you asked me to be part of the crash retrieval week, I was like, James, I, I, I'm not a crash retrieval guy. And then I'm like, I do Wilson Davis. That was kind of my introduction. Not my introduction, but I mean, I heard of Roswell, obviously, and you know, followed Stanton's work and other work, and but I never did a deep dive into that. So then in 2019, I think it was April, Giuliano, and I'll, I'll get to, I have some, I have some slides that, uh, that I saved from back then. Um, Giuliano was like, hey, you got to check this out. And it was Eric Davis's notes where he interviewed Thomas Wilson. So I started diving into that and I'm still not, you know, I'm still not well-versed on crash retrievals. I'm getting closer. I mean, learning, but nothing like Richard and other people like, you know, um, who's the guy who did Roswell? Don Schmidt. Don Schmidt, you know, not, nothing close to that. I just know basics. Um, so I'm learning as I go. So yeah, I, I do think, obviously if we have craft here and it's been going on for so long, to me, it's not that much of a stretch to think some of them may have crashed or, as Eric Davis has said to you, landed. Uh, and I have, yeah, I heard that from a source recently about a landing case. So definitely think it happened. I don't know, obviously, until we know. I don't know crashes have happened until we know for sure. But on a scale of one to 10, I would think I'm probably seven or eight. So that's where yeah. I am. All right. Uh, what about you, uh, Ryan? What do you think about crash retrievals? Uh, obviously very fascinating. There's definitely a lot of smoke, which means there, there, there might be fire. Um, emotionally, they're very difficult for me in some respects, because to me, they are the holy grail of forensic ev evidentiary proof that, that we are being engaged by non-human intelligence. And the idea that this would be sequestered away for, for seven decades is something I can't really put my mind around. I feel like it is, it is egregious to an extent that there, there's no words in the dictionary that could, could categorize the extent of the damage. I think sequestering this knowledge away has caused. Everything we know about the universe would be different if we just had this knowledge. Our scientists, our engineers, our academics, um, our teachers, just th to think what it'd be like to be born into this world and as a child and as you continue growing up through the years, the entire duration of time, you know that that vehicles from somewhere else that surpasses known technology has been recovered. I just I just have one, I just questioned myself, like how would that psychologically impact this civilization with seven plus billion people? It would change everything. It would change the way we see each other, it would change the way we critique and look at our own government. It would religions would would have conversations they've never had before. Scientists would ask questions they would never feel comfortable asking questions. So so from my perspective, it's just it's just it's literally emotionally difficult for me because I think that the fallout downstream cannot be underestimated. But as far and that's all I'll say right now. But as far as do I believe they've happened? Well, like I said, there's there's a lot of fire, so there might be smoke. Now I don't think there's as much evidence for crash retrievals as just the UAP phenomenon in general, because obviously the UAP phenomenon in general has 
tens of thousands of witnesses and enormous amounts of corroborated events, uh, radar and Navy pilots and all of that, where crash retrievals, I don't think it's, 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 you can't really equivocate the two, but that's not to say there's not good evidence. I think there is good evidence that crash retrievals have occurred. So while I'm not 100% they've happened, I'm, I'm definitely uh, suspicious that they've happened and I'll leave it at that. Sure. And uh, what about you, Danny? I'm just uh, a jerk blogger. So I, I go by people I trust and people that I think are extremely credible. And there's just way too many people across the board that are credible and ones that don't like each other even that all say there's been crashes or some sort of retrieval. I mean, we could argue whether it was a crash or a gift or a landing or some other thing we haven't thought of yet, but this debris or even large pieces or maybe even more seems to have been recovered. You can go to Dr. Gary Nolan, Jacques Vallée, Lou Elizondo said it on national TV. He didn't, uh, he wasn't, you know, he didn't mess with his words. He said it pretty, uh, succinctly and he said simply put yes and that was huge for me that was a big turning point and um just all these people across the board say that there's debris or something here and do i know for sure have i seen it no of course not being a jerk blogger that i am but uh the you know all these people that are extremely credible to me they're saying that they we uh, that we have it the government has it at least um i'm finding that some of the the core story or whatever you want to call it um, really does seem to be true. And it's, it's interesting that this, some of the core story of the UFO lore um, that was kind of sounding wacky or stupid over the decades and decades, it seems to be pretty, pretty true. A lot of it is actually, um, not all of it, but you know, a lot of it. And one of those things is the UFO debris that was probably crashed or something and the government has it. And my, I think probably uh, citizens have it too. So I'm there with it. Um, I don't think Lou would put his life on the line saying that on national TV. I don't think Gary Nolan would spend so much time and Jacques Marley would spend so much time trying to get um, these uh, scientific journals um, on board with uh, some of the evidence, at least. And I think there's still going to be a lot of cool things coming out with Dr. Gary Nolan and Jacques Marley. I'm excited about that. And what about you, Richard? Hi, James. Hi, everyone. I would... If I were to go from one to 10 on a scale of what do I think crash retrievals have happened, I would put it at 9.99 plus. Uh, I, I think it's that strong a case. Uh, everything that everyone else has said, I think is right on. Like the, the things, number of the things that Eric Davis has said, which are very interesting. Lou Elizondo, a little over a year ago, two years ago on Tucker Carlson, just put it up point blank that there have been. But even prior to that, uh, there are two researchers that I would recommend everyone everyone check out their book. Both of their books are not easy to get a hold of. This is insane. So one is by Ryan Wood, who's a friend of mine. Ryan wrote a book, um, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago called Magic Eyes Only. If you look for it on Amazon, it's like $500 or some ridiculous amount. It's a very fine book. And he has about 75 possible cases of UFO crash retrievals that he lists, lists over in there from 1941. That is the Cape Girardeau case, which is a very good one, by the way, uh, through the end of the 20th century. There, he doesn't rate them all as super strong, but I would say like maybe a quarter of them he does rate as above average. I think he's actually a bit tough in some of his uh, ratings, but yes, he's got very like good description of well-researched crash retrieval accounts. And then 
the, the other one that I think is absolutely foundational for our history of this is Leonard Stringfield. Uh, the thing about Stringfield, he died in the 90s and he's, I, most people have really forgotten this man, but it's a horrible shame because Leonard Stringfield starting in the 1970s through the 80s until his death collected, I think well more than a hundred really strong, interesting cases pertaining to UFO crash retrievals. And they are now all available in one big fat book, 80 bucks on Amazon, but I am telling you it is absolutely worth it. And I just pulled it up here. It's the UFO crash retrievals, a complete investigation status reports one through seven, because he wrote these little status reports. They were published by MUFON, which had a readership of like, you know, 2000 people through the 70s and 80s. Like no one read these things, but they are absolutely stellar. Stringfield was a good writer. And, and I'm just pointing this out because like he put together all of these different cases and, and very well, he was very careful. Cases in which someone talked about being at a crash retrieval or many uh, very commonly saying, I did a security detail at Wright-Patterson where I saw alien bodies or I saw alien bodies in this place or my dead husband who was in the Air Force told me about this and on and on. And they're all part of this. He even got an alien autopsy or an alien film story from the 1950s. I mean, long before anyone heard about Ray Santilli, Stringfield was getting similar kinds of stories about people who claim to have seen these film versions of dead aliens in a tent and this type of thing. So, and then you've got statements by like Barry Goldwater, former Senator, and you got statements. Um, you got the whole Roswell investigation and, and so much more. Uh, before we went on, we were mentioning just the great name Grant Cameron came up and Grant, you know, back in the early nineties did a, uh, research along with another individual that dealt with a man named Eric Walker. Eric Walker, former president of Penn State University. Th there's this whole little trail of breadcrumbs that led them to Walker. And sure enough, boom, he had a lot to say about UFOs, not necessarily to Grant, but to other researchers, MJ-12, crash retrievals. Like the amount of information on this is just extraordinary. And, um, you know, we're just, some of us are talking about the interview Lou Elizondo just gave for uh, Theory of Everything YouTube. And Lou was talking about, you know, recovered materials there as well, including biological materials. So this information's coming out and I think it's, it's exciting to, to know that it's coming out. Yeah, I think it's interesting to note that, uh, you know, all these guys with super high clearances, not one of them is saying that there's nothing there. All of them are seeming to indicate that there's something there. They've been trying to kind of burrow, burrow their way into these the concentric circle of, again, what we the core story or the core secrets. Um, and, uh, you know, it all involves, uh, you know, possible crash or landed UFOs, uh, biological material, metamaterials, or what Dr. Gary Nolan has called ultra materials. And again, Lou Elizondo's statements um, are, are highly indicative that there's something there. And again, he's, he, he's one out of his way to keep the issue kind of in the forefront. So um, I, I think it, it is too within reach of the conversation that we should be looking and talking about it. Now, um, did, um, 
what does everybody think about uh, like, does anybody have a, like a favorite case or one that they would point to as a, a primary case for, for UFO crash retrieval? Um, like this is, this is a really good one that everybody should be looking at. I think there was, it was a lot of fun um, in the Diana Pasoka book, American Cosmic. I don't, you know, do I have hundred percent proof it happened? Um, no, I don't. That was an interesting case. Um, I have uh, some questions about the uh, Tim character. That was his name, right? Tim, yeah. In the, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I have some questions about Tim, um, whether he was uh, who he was portrayed to be or not. Um, but that uh, specific case um, uh, was very interesting. And it's just kind of recent uh, in my mind because of that book. And the book was so compelling and cool. And uh, so that case is really interesting to me. Um, and a lot of people have theories or uh, more of uh, what the location was that they went to. Um, so I think the Nevada cases um, and the cluster of them that happened are, are really interesting. Um, and, and why did uh, all that happen? And of course, Diana Pasolka has a lot of theories about what was going on back then. And a lot of them, I, I, uh, they're over my head and I can't even wrap my mind around some of the stuff, but um, it's really interesting things. And I, I think that would be my favorite, just all the Nevada crashes because uh, of the lore that surrounds them and how they changed basically everything moving forward. I mean, people, not just Roswell, all the other ones, but even hearing Lou saying he's 100% on Roswell recently. I mean, that was yeah. insane. That was totally uh, he did. Interesting. Yeah. I would add, uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned the Cape Girardeau crash when I was just mentioned, talking earlier. And I'm actually a really big uh, supporter of that case. Also the Aztec UFO case, which we don't really hear a lot about either, but with Cape Girardeau, you've got really one main person. Her name is Charlotte Mann. Uh, I've spoken to Charlotte a few times. She's still around. She's an absolutely lovely lady. And in my opinion, just ultra believable, but she got a deathbed confession from her grandmother. Um, in fact, Stringfield was one of the people who spoke to her um, way, way back in earlier decades. But her grandfather was a man named William Huffman. Yeah, Huffman, who was brought in to pray over, he was a reverend, he was brought in to pray over crash victims outside of the town of Cape Girardeau, Missouri. He was talking about police being there, FBI being there, emergency people. Uh, strange craft, hieroglyphic, hiero, excuse me, glyphic type of writings. Uh, all of that was from 1941, really early. And then, you know, we all know about Roswell, which I think is a strong case for something exotic, but we've talked Roswell to death. The Aztec case from March of 1948, I think is a hell of a case that researchers dismissed for years and years until it slowly got resuscitated uh, there was a book that came out in the 1980s by uh, late researcher William Steinman, but the real work has been done by Scott and Suzanne Ramsey, who also are, they're wonderful people and tireless researchers who I think made an absolute open and shut case that when the Aztec UFO incident was debunked supposedly in the 1950s, this was a complete hatchet job. Uh, and a vengeance job by uh, a journalist who actually had wanted in on the story. And um, uh, the um, Scully, who's the author of the, oh, 
um, Frank Scully, my brain, uh, didn't want to work with him. And this guy just went out of his way to, to trash Scully's book. But the actual Aztec case is surprisingly strong, very strong case. And those are just a couple of early ones. There's, there's quite a few others. Uh, you know, Jacques Vallée and Paula Harris have been talking about the Trinity case from 1945, which actually is not, it's a decent case. I think, again, you know, there, you can only make so much uh, when you've got witnesses who are nine years old, but nine years old, you're old enough to know what you're saying. And, you know, years later as an adult, I don't, I don't think there's any reason to doubt that these two witnesses did see what they did. And, and they actually... They were, um, they were first, they were on horseback, these two kids, days when kids could just do all kinds of things that they can't do today. <laughs> uh, and they were out there and they, they came across this craft with apparently three dead bodies in there, alien bodies or creatures of some sort. And there's a lot that they had to say about that. And, and I'm very glad that Jacques Vallée and Paolo wrote this book. Yeah, it's, um, you know, Jacques Vallée, you know, he says, you know, he's often been criticized for not covering the, the crash retrieval subject, but he, you know, he went out there and, you know, did an investigation, basically put his name on it and put the research out there. He was dismissive um, of it for a long time, like through the nineties and early part of this century, he was, he was very tough on crash retrievals. It's true. Yeah. But he's obviously and, and changed a, his position. Yeah. And it's a tough topic. I mean, you know, here he was going around collecting all these materials, you know, Uba Tuba and, and all the other places where, he was able to get small samples of what he called ejectiles and all these different small pieces of, uh, you know, alleged UFO materials, mm -hmm. but he, you know, he never went full in until just recently. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Ryan? Uh, do you have any particular um, cases or, or type of evidence that you think is, um, compelling? Well, you know, crash retrievals is probably one of my weak points. Uh, I haven't done that much research into it, but I'm really happy that Jacques Vallée and Gary Nolan are doing a, a examination of materials to ascertain if there's any strange makeup of them to maybe give credibility to the proposition that they may not have been produced on earth. I know, I know they've said that there's there could be one of two possibilities with these materials. If they were produced on earth, it costs an a, a enormous amount of money, like hundreds of millions of dollars to create, or it could be coming from some sort of craft that has been retrieved and is of unknown origin. But yeah, the crash retrievals is, is not my forte necessarily, but I, I think it's an extremely important subject matter to study and to research. And, and to, to speak about in a sober manner. I mean, it, it's not really, a, it's not, frankly, it's not a big stretch at all. I mean, if there's UAP and people are seeing them all over the world, then some of them may crash. And, you know, we have the Rua Zimbabwe case in, in uh, was it South Africa or Zimbabwe, yeah, whatever? Zimbabwe, yeah. Zimbabwe. And, and so you had all these school children seeing uh, a UAP land and, and, and beings get out of the craft and some of them reported they received telepathic messages. And so, you know, it's like, if we can accept that, then <laughs> we should obviously be at least entertain the possibility that some have crashed. And like I said, I, I'm, I, I'm suspicious that some have crashed. I mean, if you li listen to um, journalist Ross Coldhart, he has gone on the record say saying that he has 
uh, he has spoken with three high-level officials from the Department of Defense. Uh, I recollect two of them former, one of them current, and they've all told him that they are under the impression through the information that they have access to that vehicles have been retrieved. You can ask Leslie Kane the so same question. She'll give you the same answer. T journalist Tom Rogan, uh, th th there's there, there, you, uh, Lou Elizondo. There are people who are credible who are saying this has happened. So for anyone to say, oh, it's, it's all nonsense. Well, that's kind of ridiculous. We, we, can't, we can't say that with any degree of certainty. It's all nonsense. And I think at the very minimum, we should all be suspicious that something like this has happened and the government has lied about it, just like they've lied about the UAP subject in general. And, and retrievals have happened, I think, 100%. The question is, what, uh, you know, was it like some satellite, some Russian satellite, Chinese satellite, or was it, you know, something else? Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's, it's beyond provable that the government is retrieving uh, material. Um, but again, we have that drone or satellite monkey on our back where uh, that's, that's what makes it hard to prove. But they're definitely going around retrieving things. And whether, and it's not always a UFO crash retrieval program. It may just be um, some government entity like FEMA or other, whoever comes up, up, um, up on it first. You know, if there's a crash or something, then maybe first responders are going to get in out there first. It's not always some UFO team, um, at least not at first. And uh, I think that's really interesting. But of course, we have to make the argument that it's something from a UFO or something like that, rather than a drone or a satellite or what have you. I'm just add. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, and 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 yeah. and I think it's fair to be suspicious that they're seeing UAP. Like, just look at Roswell. We have hundreds of witnesses that have come forward. We have Jesse Marcel. Uh, you know, people can tell the difference between some sort of exotic uh, vehicle and and weather balloon material. And that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, I was just going to mention when Danny was talking about um, you know retrieval of objects. I mean, we had back in nineteen circa nineteen sixty one establishment of something called Project Moon Dust. And that was an explicit uh, program to recover exotic debris. And if you look at the original Moon Dust document, um, they talk about, I don't have it in front of me here, but it talked about re recovering Soviet or Russian spacecraft and this and that and this and that. And then one is unidentified flying objects. <laughs> so as, as distinct from all of those other things you know, like spacecraft and the like. So now I don't know that that proves that they thought UFOs were extraterrestrial, but it does even, we're talking 60 plus years ago, they were distinguishing UFOs from everything else that we could identify as prosaic and Southern, some other nation's technology. So I think it's been going on for a while. And Jay. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Joe. If, if you want, I could just take you through some of my slides that I, I came up with this because it takes you through my story of how I even got into crash retrievals. Uh, so 2018 it was like close to Thanksgiving. I saw Eric Davis post on, a, on I think it was on George Knapp's Facebook saying, Jimmy Corbell's documentary on Bob Lazar is about to come out. And I was like, and, he, and Eric Davis jumped in. He's like, we don't need a documentary about it. Bob Lazar, he's a liar. I'm like, how about you wait for the documentary to come out? You watch it, and then you can judge Lazar's story. He's like, I don't need to see it. So we started communicating privately, um, and he was giving me his opinion on Lazar, and then we started talking. We, we became friends. And then I will share my screen where it went in April of 
2019. And now, of course, I cannot find, oh, there it is. Just tell me if this uh, comes up okay. Can you guys see the screen yet? Not yet? I do not see it. Is that it? There we go. There, there we, we go. go. Okay. So April 19th, 2019, Juliana Morankovic, one of the best researchers out there, Mr. UFO Google, he sends a message to Chris Welford, uh, and me and Danny and says, hey guys, I got this. You're not going to believe this. And it was the Wilson Davis notes. Basically in 97, Greer said that he had briefed a, a joint chief of staff guy. And I heard it on the radio on Art Bell back then. So I didn't know who was this joint chiefs guy. Well, it turns out it was Admiral Thomas Wilson and the notes came out and Eric Davis apparently interviewed Tom Wilson and Admiral Wilson in 2002 in Las Vegas. And Wilson told him he was, he found the crash retrieval program and he was shut out of it because he did not have a need to know. So I wrote to Eric Davis. I'm like, Hey, what's the deal? I know you probably can't say anything, but the notes are out there because we had held off even talking about it because we didn't want to get other people in hot water like Eric. And he said, no comment. And Eric, always comments. So I was like, okay, these could be, these could be legit. And like, who's Eric Davis? So he has his PhD, University of Arizona, 91, astrophysics, as astrophysics, specialties, breakthrough propulsion physics for interstellar flight, co-author of Frontiers in Propulsion Science, which Lou Elizondo has held up before. It's a, it's a peer-reviewed academic, I think they call it a monolith. Uh, and he's been a contractor consultant to the United States Air Force, Air Force Research Lab, DOD agencies, uh, Department of Energy, NASA, and others. He was a contractor as an employee of EarthTech to OSAP. He was a consultant to ATIP uh, and the UAP task force. He authored five DIRDs, uh, Defense Intelligence. Uh, Danny, what are those called, the DIRDs, you guys? Defense, Defense Intelligence Reference Document. Thank you. For OSAP, he, and he co-authored one other, uh, covering topics such as transversible wormholes, stargates, anti-gravity, numerous articles and papers in mainstream physics journals and publications. And I was talking to you guys beforehand. Some of these that he sent to me yesterday, they have titles where I don't even know what the word means. I mean, I'm, I'm prepared not to be able to understand what's in the actual paper because there's a lot of equations and stuff like that. But uh, quantum inequality on the Alcubierre drive, which I do know what that is. Uh, and then the Levi Savita space times, don't know what that is. Uh, and he wrote the, uh, a paper for uh, the Air Force Research Lab on teleportation, which he gets a lot of flack for. Um, he thinks outside the box. And I believe he interviewed Admiral Thomas Wilson in Vegas in 2002. James, anytime you want to cut me off, I got a lot of stuff. Just let me know. So that's oh, 2019. Uh, he had just been a made a member of the International Academy of Astronautics, Astronautics which is an independent non-government organization recognized by the United Nations. Uh, members from 83 different countries. Uh, I remember that day he was excited. Uh, There's his, his official being made a member of the group. And then that's the New York Times article in July of 2020, this came out, we all knew it was coming. And it said Davis works for aerospace and he gave a classified briefing to the Defense Department agency as recently March, as March about retrievals from off world vehicles not made on this earth which reminds us of the language in the, in the Wilson Davis documents. And the city also gave classified briefings to the briefings to the Senate Armed Services Committee and the Senate Select Intelligence Committee two days later. And then um, Frank Milburn, uh, who's written some great articles, he had Eric email, Eric Davis's emails from an email group. I think it's Jackson Hardy's group. And Eric just said, yeah, those craft are, craft are off world. As I've told two Senate committees, 
staff and DOD agencies. And that his response, what he said about that, it's not his opinion, but where the physics and the facts lead. Um, some of his quotes, he said, oh, this is, this is something I received recently. So this is from a source and yes, it's anonymous and people get upset that I have anonymous sources, but these people are not gonna talk about crash retrievals unless they're anonymous. The only person that's openly spoken about crash retrievals and the program has been Eric Davis. This particular source is anonymous and they told me Eric Davis handled the UAP crash retrieval portfolio. So like I said, think about what Davis has said in the past about crash retrievals and the briefings he's given. If you guys- hey, Joe, have, can I ask you? Yeah, let me, let me uh, share for a second. Oh, I just want to ask you, so that source who talked about Davis and the crash retrieval portfolio, that's not, that's someone different from the Mr. X that you and I both know. Right, this is that's not- a different person altogether. Definitely not Mr. X. Because I don't want to interrupt because you're on a real roll, but uh, maybe later we can talk about this. This is a gentleman, Mr. X. I've interviewed him and I know you know him, you've talked to him. Yes. And he's, he's just absolutely, he's a brilliant analyst. And the one thing he did is he put together a ton of really comprehensive sweep of Davis's various statements and did a extremely deep dive, long article. I posted it on my website, it's freely available to anyone. That is the real, as he thinks, the real story of of Eric Davis, and he essentially comes to the same conclusion. Davis was read in through a former senior VP at Lockheed into a crash retrieval, into a crash retrieval program or some kind of acquisition program. Yeah, I, so, spoke, I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. A guy is really smart, really smart guy. He, he absolutely, but but this source of yours, this is a different person who sounds like he's telling you like for a fact that he knows that Davis was read into this or was part of this. Well, he was he was in charge of the crash retrieval portfolio. So I don't know exactly. Hey, what does that mean exactly, right? What does that mean? Don't know, and I don't have anything else. I mean, people talk about Luis Elizondo who was in charge of the ATIP portfolio because it wasn't an official funded program. Although he said recently that it did get funding. He didn't explain where the funding came from because people are like, well, the $22 million from OSAP that didn't go to ATIP. And he's like, well, we had funding. I'll just leave it at that. Mm -hmm. So that's a little question mark. I'd love to know where that funding came from. You know, I don't doubt him. You know, I don't think. I, I know something. Um, this wouldn't uh, be funding, of course, but I know they weren't able to use infrastructure. Um, so if it was kind of on the clock, you know, like let's say a military plane or something like that, they were they were able to use that. Now that that wouldn't class, classify as funding, though. But uh, that is how they were able to get things done, if um, part part of the time at least. Uh, was just using infrastructure and um, government uh, uh, equipment. So essentially, like that. borrowing infrastructure from else from other programs. Yeah, that exactly. Type of thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're part of the government. They have access to that stuff now. Again, that wouldn't classify as funding, but it would be a way to. Uh, yeah, they're, exactly. they're using taxpayer dollars indirectly, essentially. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I, I felt bad for interrupting, Joe. I don't know if you're on a roll, if you want to keep going. but no, That's fine. Yeah, I can keep going. You guys can interrupt anytime. Um, so let's see. It is. And now, so you guys see that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So James is also friends with uh, Eric Davis. And after Lou Elizondo came out on Tucker, Tucker Carlson and said, yes, I believe the United States has debris in their possession from a UFO. Eric Davis jumped on and said, Lou Elizondo's very brief answer to Tucker Carlson's question about whether the United States government is in possession of recovered crash and landed UFO technology hardware is a thousand percent accurate. 
My national security NDAs prevent me from adding any further comment on this. Let me stop sharing because that's like, it's like nobody expected him to say that. It's like, <laughs> it's like it was amazing to hear him say that. And um, definitely unexpected. I don't know what you guys think when you heard no, that. No, that was about a week before his the leaked notes came out, like his notes on his meeting with Thomas Wilson. That came out about a week or so later. So this was all prior. This is just before that whole explosion happened. So yeah, I think he was completely upfront. It was an amazing statement. Good I think, job, James, for getting that. Yeah, yeah, James. It was an awesome quote. I love using that quote. <clears throat> I, I, asked, I asked Eric one point. I said, on a scale of, I don't know if it was one to 10, or let's say it was <laughs> one to 100. I'm like, how sure are you there's a crash retrieval program? On a scale of one to 100, he said, 1,000. So, yeah, he, and he's not the only one. There are other people alive and dead who have that same belief. Um, so it's like when you see, like I told you, his background, he's very credible, despite what some people say on social media, <laughs> attack his credibility. He's a very credible guy who thinks outside the box, unlike most scientists. I mean, that's why when people say, why is it such a small amount of people? Why is it the same people over, over? It's always Kit Green, put off and Davis. Well, because they're the only ones that are willing to put their reputation on the line and talk about this. It's that simple. So I can keep going. Um, yeah. Let's see. And now I have some quotes from Davis over the years. He goes, if you're going to throw your bets on Roswell, your bet's really good. Del Rio, Texas, that was the 1950s case. That's another one. And the other ones I won't bring up because those are still classified. But we have crash retrievals and they've been analyzed. And unfortunately, our laboratory diagnostic technologies and our material scientists Sciences and the understanding of physics that we had were not advanced enough to be able to make heads or tails of what it is, what they had in their, what they had their hands on. The customer being a certain government agency decided to just pull the plug on the funding. So that was the end of it. And that was to George Knapp, 2018 on Coast to Coast. And then this was, Danny was talking about this. This was only a couple of days ago. We didn't expect Lou to say this. He said on Disclosure Tonight, he goes, my personal belief in Roswell a thousand, a hundred percent, but I cannot speak officially and I can't discuss about anything else that may or may not have transpired. Uh, Davis to Alejandro Rojas, 2018, the superpowers on the earth have had their share of crashes and they have recovered the vehicles from their crashes. That's why Jacques Vallée and I agree that even though these things behave like a conscious, spiritual, psychic entity, they do have an advanced technology. They have hardware and there's a craft and there's occupants of UFO, occupants or UFO knots that valet calls them. So there's UFO knots running these craft, whatever they may be. I'll stop here because go back to that theory of everything interview. Luce talks about, we can see occupants, we think, because the photos are not totally clear. Um, I think, I think if, if anybody in our government believes we have occupants, I would think it's more because of crash retrievals and not because of pictures, but I don't know what you guys think. It could be both. It could be both. Good point. I'll just say that, um, you know, just, just listening to that amazing testimony from Davis, you know, I do understand why skeptics are so skeptical of this, not because it's outlandish that there are UAP piloted by other intelligences engaging our planet. But it, when you listen to Davis's word and words, and he talks about not just one crash, not just two crashes, but multiple crashes, I get the impression in the United States alone. And then he talks about worldwide crashes. I mean, I've, I've heard Elizondo speak about a crash that took that was acquired in Italy. He saw the documentation. He says that looks interesting. I don't remember his exact words. Some documentation with regard with Mussolini. 
And so when you when you look mm-hmm. at all this sheer number of, of, of alleged crashes, how is it that they are keeping this completely sequestered away from the from all of civilization? Now I would counter that, however, because you know, ironically, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson had made a great quote recently, and I use this a lot when, when people say something can't be. I say, well, I, I use this quote, even though he was using it not to support UFO intelligence existing, but he said, the universe is not obligated to, to make sense to you. So just because something <laughs> seems outlandish or seems like it's unlikely doesn't mean it is. Um, and so, and, and so but what I wanted to say is that, you know, we had the Nimitz encounter in 2004 with, with an, an, an amazing array of aviators and technicians and radar operators. And, and, and the witness testimony is corroborated. And, and interestingly, not one of the witnesses, not one that has come forward has said, you know what, I think it was a glitch, or you know what, I think it was a Chinese drone. Every one of them are in unison that whatever was encountered <clears throat> that day is technology that surpasses known technology, whether it's extraterrestrial or not. And so my point is, is that we went all these years without knowing that took place. Now, even if you are to make the argument that what took place on, on November 16th, 2004 was a nothing burger. It's not a nothing burger that all of these professionals that are, that are, we spend millions of dollars to fight wars and win wars on behalf of the United States government are all saying, hey man, we saw something crazy, insane, no wings, no rudders, uh, no obvious form of propulsion. We all saw it, we saw it on radar, we saw it on, we saw it uh, visually, Six, six aviators saw it, whether it's Chad Underwood or Fravor. And, and we only learned about that on December 16th, 2000, uh, excuse me, 2000, 2017. Yes, 2017, yeah. sorry. December 16th, 2017. So it's like, I can just make the argument, well, how, how is it possible we're just finding out about that? So my point is, is that things could probably be concealed to a further extent then people want to entertain. I mean, if they could, if, if all of the, our world is just learning about the Nimitz event, then there may come a time where all of our world will just learn about crash retrievals. It, it's not necessarily that big a, big of a distinction between the two. We're dealing with extraordinary technology either way. And that's all I really wanted to say. Can I just tack on? I, I thought that was a great statement, Ryan. And uh, a lot of people, I think they really underestimate the, the strength of the cover-up. I mean, I've been, I've been fighting the UFO conspiracy wars now for like 25, almost 30 years. And uh, I think people really do not understand just how well the United States can arm uh, heavy, heavy handedly uh, overwhelm its allies and get them to play ball on this. Like people will say, well, there's oh, like 200 countries in the world and you're going to tell me the United States is able to control all of them. And I'm going to say, yes, pretty much all of them, except for a small handful of you know, Russia and China, obviously, Iran, North Korea. Okay, there's a few outliers, but the United States really controls every everyone. And the U.S. intelligence community is deeply intertwined with the intelligence communities of all of its allied nations. They, first of all, they would never, ever go against the United States on something as this important. But we know, like, for a fact, the U- U.S. has, like, when, when there are crash retrieval stories that have happened in other nations, like there was one in um, Bolivia in 1978. We, we have a few records that were FOIA'd out of that 
showing that Americans were on the spot. Americans came in and they took over the whole scene. And this is how it works. And unless these objects are coming down in the middle of New York City or some other major place, I mean, if they come out, come down anywhere in, in a place that is somewhat away from populated areas, which has happened, it's, I think it's a lot easier and people realize that this situation can be controlled, especially when you've got you know, virtually total control over establishment media these days, which is almost complete and it's almost to the point of totalitarian. But even in the 40s and 50s was very, very overwhelming. It, it was not difficult to control the information flow and also to control other governments. And, um, and the other thing I'll just, I wanna point out because people will sometimes say, well, how can these aliens are so advanced and they come here and they just crash. And you hear this as, a, as like an objection. And what Ryan was pointing out about uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's statement, this is like one of the best things I've heard from the mouth of Tyson, which is the universe is not obligated to make sense to you. The, the thing with UFO crashes, A, it's, it sometimes is very, it's not always a good idea for us to try to think for these aliens. Like, how could they crash? They're supposed to be so advanced. Well, the fact is we don't, we don't know all of the factors that are going in here to, to cause what do appear to be a number of these. However, I would just point out that in our own aviation, so our own aircraft are you know, very safe. Like you've got a one in I think 11 million chance of either having a plane crash or getting killed in a plane crash, whatever it is, it's very low. But even so, like we have, uh, I think it was even recently, like in the nineties or early 2000, we we're having like over 200 commercial airline crashes a year. And there are like 2000 deaths per year in those. Like we have had a lot. Now we have a tremendous amount of traffic, but again, we don't, how, do we really know how much alien traffic there, there is? We really don't know. Do we know if there are standing orders to engage in these things or not? That at their, different times there have been. And I think we underestimate ourselves when we, when we say like, well, we could never compete with them. Not sure that's really true anymore. So we really do not know a lot of factors. And there, I'm just saying, you know, I don't, I don't know everything that's going on there, but it just, it seems to me that there are valid reasons to be very open and accepting of the, the likelihood of alien crashed, you um, flying saucers or, you know, crash vehicles. So that's it. I think there's something to the EMP story. And, um, you know, <clears throat> uh, Lou hasn't um, exactly brushed that off in interviews, as far as I know. And correct me if I'm wrong, guys. But when he gets asked about, you know, Operation Starfish, and uh, that's what it was called, right? Starfish Prime. Starfish yeah. Prime, that's right. Starfish Prime, which um, when I asked around about that, I didn't get anything back on it. But I think that scenario, even if that wasn't um, a time when, when a UFO was uh, taken down, that scenario seems to be somewhat accurate or at least not brushed off. Again, I don't have proof, but that seems to be something that maybe has happened. And maybe the, these EMP blasts, you can blast a general area of the sky or any other place and maybe things get taken down. Um, so that could uh, explain some of these crashes and especially since uh, uh, the forties and fifties um, when we had uh, advanced technology. So I, I don't know, that isn't, that's just something I don't brush off at all. And um, it, it was hard for me to believe, but again, when you kind of hear different people kind of alluding to it, um, we can't just rule it out. 
Yeah, and uh, I, I will say I, I asked around about Starfish Prime uh, as well. And again, people are not going to like this, but I got a big affirmative uh, saying that was a true blue incident. So oh. you know, for what that's worth, it was um, like no. Do question. any of you want to tell the tell the listeners like what that was? Okay, so Starfish are not. Yeah, Starfish Prime, I believe it was 1962 or 1968, and it was a high-altitude nuclear detonation test. And uh, apparently, I mean, you know, Tom DeLong has talked about it on, I believe, Coast to Coast or Fade to Black, and he said it was intentionally done to see if this would work to take down UFOs, allegedly. I don't know if that is true, but um, so when they did this high-altitude uh, nuclear detonation, it creates a massive EMP burst, uh, electromagnetic pulse. And that had allegedly interfered with um, the UFOs technology and taken them down. And, you know, when I asked Lou Elizondo about it on the interview I did with him, he speculated that, you know, if they have some kind of uh, force field or bubble around them, that that EMP might so to speak, pop that bubble and bring them to regular gravity instead of anti-gravity and basically nullify their systems. Um, yeah, I, I just mentioned because um, in a book I wrote, uh, I wrote UFOs for the 21st Century Mind a number of years ago. And in that, I, I put in a story of a, a man that I interviewed. His name was David, U.S. Navy. And uh, he, he was part of something called Operation Dominic, which was also 1962. And Dominic was a series of high altitude nuclear detonations. This is in the period where the United States was just detonating nukes like all the time. And so were the Soviets, the Russians. And uh, Dominic went from, I think, April of 1962 to October. The actual, it ended during the Cuban or right after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this went through late October, 1962. And this man was part of a number of those. So he was at a Navy vessel off the coast of Hawaii and he would, first of all, one thing he said to me is that this was typical that every time before there was a, de- a scheduled detonation, because they did, I think there were 36 high altitude nuclear detonations during that period of time. So from April to uh, October's amazing. Good God, right? So he said, there were always these massive numbers of bogeys that were way up there. We always detected them. He said, and they always disappeared right before we did the detonation, he said, except for one time. And that was the second last um, uh, scheduled um, test of Operation Dominic and I think it was October 25th, 1962. And he said, we were off the coast of Hawaii, 500 miles, I think, west of, of the Hawaiian Islands. And this thing happened and he, I'll skip a lot of the details, I wrote about it, but he basically said this one object came down and it was tracked. They sent a recovery team out there, which failed to recover this object. But one diver, um, according to to this man, David, who spoke to me, um, came down and landed. He was the first diver to do like a recon of it. And he was standing on top of it and didn't even realize it and just basically freaked out. He said he could see through it partially. It was almost like a honeycombed type of a, a look. It's a crazy story, but I, all I will say is I know this man and a number of other people, he's out in California, he's getting on in years, but a lot of people know him and I think he's got a lot of credibility, so. 
Just thought I'd put that out there. Oh, yeah, this... Go ahead, Ryan. I, I was Go just going to say that because we're on the nuclear detonation subject, <clears throat> I, I recall George Knapp saying that in some of the research he did, that there were people who were actually paid during their, like the test site in Nevada when they would actually blow up nuclear devices, there were people that were paid to be on the lookout for UAP. And Knapp said that sometimes they would see UAP a little bit before the detonation or a little bit after the de detonation and sometimes even during the detonation, which I thought was really interesting that they actually allegedly wow. um, hired people to be on the lookout for UAP because UAP are interested in, in nu nuclear installations and even the detonation of nuclear devices, apparently. Well, that fits yeah. with everything else. That's that's great for mentioning that. Yeah, of, and that even ties in with um, Jacques Vallée's Trinity story. You know, just shortly after they did the first detonation of an atomic, you know, weapon as a test, we have the Trinity case occur. Yeah. Yes. Definitely significant. It, it ties in, and then you've got, in addition to the crash retrievals uh, and that connection, I mean, hey Roswell. You know, who recovered at Roswell's the first the unit in the world that had access to nuclear weapons, but all of the cases of UFOs and nukes, Robert Hastings, great researcher, wrote a lot about this big, big fat book, uh, describing the, not just the Malmstrom case of 1967 or the Minot Air Force case of 1966, but many, many, many others. Warren Air Force Base in uh, Colorado had a number of cases in later years and quite a few others that Hastings documented very, very well. And going all the way back into the, into the 40s and 50s, you had something called the green fireball phenomenon of 1948, starting 40, going in 49 to 50, uh, localized activity over Los Alamos National Labs. No one can figure this out. It freaked everyone out. All the scientists, you've got these high, Edward Teller was one of the scientists, father of the hydrogen bomb, who is part of the team classified, a man named Dr. Lincoln La Paz, one of the most foremost experts in, in meteoritics, meteors as part of this day, and everyone concluded, this is not natural. This is not a natural phenomenon, but no one, like, is it the Russians? Are they sending these, these sensors over Los Alamos? Like, uh, we do not have an official conclusion, but that's a whole, that, that's an amazing story. And then you've got sightings over um, Oak Ridge, Tennessee in the, in the late 40s through the 50s. Oak Ridge was a major nuclear technology establishment by the United States. And then the Hanford nuclear site in Washington had a famous one that we have a UFO document on detailing sightings over the Hanford plan in 1950. Um, objects round in form sighted over the Hanford plan, Air Force jets attempted interception with negative results, anti-aircraft battalions, anti-aircraft uh, squads alerted, anti-air uh, force squadrons alerted. Like this was major stuff. And you know, the public, of course, never had a clue about this. Uh, the documents only came out years later, but the, the UFO and nuclear connection is undeniable, undeniable. So that's it. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's not just, it's, it's all nuclear. It's nuclear plants for electricity. It's aircraft carriers that are nuclear powered. It's weapon depots that house the nuclear uh, devices themselves. It's ICBM installations. It's just, there is a, a, a very yeah. high level of evidence that they, it's not just one kind of nuclear uh, platform that they're interested in. And they're interested in anything with, with nukes. And it's really fascinating. That's right. and, 
Elizondo has been asked before, have any of these warships uh, tried to sort of be utilized to attract UAP? And, and I, I don't think he was, I think what he said, if I re recollect correctly is, you know, I really don't want to answer that. That's probably something that the United States government should answer regarding that question. And it might've been uh, corresponding to some of the um, encounters in 20, 2019 maybe, but that's all I've got to say about that. Oh, that some of the warships might have had nuclear ordnance or something along those lines? Yeah, or, or, just, just be, or even just nuclear powered and they may have been trying to bait yeah. UAP oh, yeah, into the vicinity just to study them. There's a great article um, and I may be getting his name wrong, Hermetic Penetrator or something like that. Yeah. yeah. It's one of the best articles I saw of the year talking about a Russian, a Russian general saying, basically, we know how to bring them in. We do anything related to nuclear. Just planning to do something with nuclear attracts them. Uh, and Lou was, Lou was quoted in that same article uh, talking about, how, I don't remember exactly what he said, but basically implying, yes, that was something real. Then I remember some people are, are speculating on the West Coast with the Omaha uh, and the other ships that were involved in the sightings that something went on like that they were out there to bait them but, but i don't know that's not that's not confirmed i haven't had that confirmed from anybody else and the other thing is people will say why are we shooting these things down they're not doing anything to us and my thought is like we don't know that i mean we have people enough people reporting abductions in my opinion i think that's a real phenomenon i don't know if these are not a threat or if they are a threat if they're not going to tell us why they're here sorry I'm not a warlike person whatsoever, but if you're not going to tell us why you're here, you are open, you're, you're, you're target practice. I'm sorry. You know, I have no problem with them taking them down. And I know that's a, that's a really not popular opinion with a lot of people in our community. A lot of people are heavily ideological on this. And it's honestly, it's infected. It's infected a lot of our discussion uh, and like how to analyze what this is. Is it a threat or not? And and I just think it's, uh, I agree with you, Joe. I, I just think it's the height of foolishness to make these assumptions. And you have a lot of the folks uh, very prominent in the field who, who will say the same thing. It's like, well, they're obviously not a threat because if they're able to master interstellar travel, then they must have figured out how not to destroy themselves. And it's like, those are huge assumptions. Like they could be, uh, one person said, they could be our the next version of like the interstellar economic hitmen. You know? There, there's no reason to think that they're they're going to be good, and and there's every reason to think they are covert. They are doing things on this planet that are not being publicly announced. One of the things that I follow, this is a really a little bit off topic, but I've really been getting into that. I, I go to the Peter Davenport's National UFO Reporting Center frequently, and I'm also still a huge fan of George Filer who does Filer's Files, and uh, I just to read current reports and. One thing that I always notice is like these objects are likely to hover over your neighborhood at two in the morning or three in the morning. Like people will, typical reporters, like I went to have a cigarette, I, I couldn't sleep, whatever. I went out to my house, it's three in the morning and I saw this black object hovering over the neighborhood. And sometimes I'll say it was shining a light down or like just doing things. And these are around the world. This is not all in the United States. Uh, it's not every single night that you get a report like this, but it's Frequent enough. And I would simply like to know who the hell are these people? Is this a is this some kind of black budget operation? If so, they have an infinite amount of money to play with because they're doing this around the world all the time. And what, by the way, are they doing? Is this ET? Well, are they abducting people? That's an obvious thing you wonder about. But whatever it is, they're skulking about and they're doing something that 
yes, I would like to know what that is. And just assume, oh, they're all here to help us ascend to the next density or what have you, I just think is absolute foolishness. And for people to just have this assumption that all of these aliens are here to help us. I just think, I don't know what, what drugs are you on that you think that this is actually the case? Like if we were to time travel back 2000 years or a thousand years with all of our technology and to show off all the, to the locals like our iPhones or our tech or our nice clothing, they might also think, oh wow, you guys really got your act together. You must have solved all of your social economic problems. Yeah, let's just give you the keys to our kingdom. Like, no, like we're as messed up, as screwed up as they were, maybe more so. And there's no reason to think that super intelligent, even evolutionary advanced or technologically advanced aliens are somehow nice. Like, That's why would we think that? If they wanted to do us harm, Richard, they would have done it by now. That's the argument I hear all the time. I'm like, I don't know what argument. kind of damage they did. They may have, they may have guided humanity in a certain direction. I don't know. So I don't possible. know. What if there's, what if there's multiple groups? Uh, what if we have been guided? It wouldn't shock me to think that we've been, our DNA has been manipulated. I, I speculated this a year ago in my last book. Elizondo was talking about this in his recent interview. I was kind of shocked to see that. It's possible. Maybe we're a project. Charles Ford, 100 years ago, wondered that. Maybe we're property. I think we're property, he said. But that doesn't mean, you know, since we have our technology in the last century, let's say century and a half, we're on another level now. We're, we're not what we were for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. 10,000 years ago, UFO landed. There's not a damn thing we could do about it. We couldn't even write about it. Nothing. <laughs> like there's nothing that we could do. Okay. If it happens now, like we have substantial capabilities. And I happen to think that our progress has brought the neighborhood in. Like, I just think we have been observed. We weren't all that interesting several centuries ago. But once we discovered science and technology, I think the others were like, aha, they're going to, we're going to have to keep an eye on them now. And I personally believe, I mean, UFO sightings have gone through the roof in the last century. I don't think that's, simply because we're noticing them more. I think it's because they're actually here in greater numbers. And that's because of who, what we're doing, not just nukes, but like computers, artificial intelligence, all the stuff that we're doing, we're creating a new version of ourselves and a new civilization like right now. And I, I think they obviously know this and that's what's bringing them in. And some of them may think, oh, let's help them out. So I think at least one or maybe more than one group might be thinking they're messed up and we're going to do something about it. We're going to infiltrate. We're going to like, it's, there's no reason to think that they're all going to be all sweetness and light and wanting to help us. I just think it's logically deeply flawed. And also the evidence does not support this. I, I want to say like what I think might be motivating this kind of perspective. And, and that might be, uh, pseudo spirituality, pseudo enlightenment, because anyone who, who feels like they have it all figured out and they can, they can say, well, here's what's going on. They're X, Y, Z. They've, they've been around so long. They didn't destroy their own civilization. Therefore, if they're capable of interstellar travel, there's no way they would have a mean bone in their body. To me, that's, that's pseudo spirituality. That's pseudo enlightenment. To me, spirituality is defined by humility and being capable of saying, I don't know. But some of these figures in the community are not willing to go there. So it's, it's to me, it's partly an ego trip. They want to tell everyone around them, hey, 
you know, aliens. So this is what's going on and saying, instead of being like, you know what, we really don't know, we need more data. And, and I like what Elizondo says. He says, you know, uh, even the word abduction suggests illegality. If you abduct someone, it's illegal. And Elizondo says, look, if someone in my family is taken against their will, I don't care what their intention is. I don't care what their higher mentality is. To me, that's unethical and that's against the law and that's wrong. And I think we need a nuanced conversation when it comes to this presence, one that looks in a lot of different into a lot of different possibilities instead of people on their high horse trying to tell everyone exactly what's going on when ultimately they don't know. It's just all ego. Absolutely. Weird so think because, about, uh, oh, I sorry. Was, I was just gonna say it is weird. Um, you know, some uh, of the general public, they're, they're not gonna believe in aliens or UFOs or whatever you wanna call them until there's like some sort of Independence Day event. And then we have uh, people in the UFO community and they're not gonna believe that there's any um, malicious intent until there's some sort of Independence Day event, because they keep saying, why haven't they blown us up yet? Like we couldn't be a farm or something. But that's all I had on that. Think about with abductions when you hear about this. I know we're, we were doing a crash retrieval panel. Sorry, James. But like when people recount their abduction memories, it's very frequently like there'd be a gray or a, like an insect type of alien that says, we love you. You are special. Can you imagine like, what a line like that's that's like the corniest line that any creepy boyfriend would try to like tell us like oh yeah you're really special baby well they tell this to us how how can they really love us like you don't even know these beings and they love you seriously and yet people will report feeling this intense love and emotion back but what's that all about well they're clearly manipulating your emotions they figured out how to do that we know how to screw with people's emotions in our technology. Military knows how to do that. They can induce panic. They can induce, you know, when people have a, a, a craft that's over them frequently, they have these bizarre emotional reactions, like either ultra calm or they go into total fear factor mode and they freak out. But like, it's clear that these beings are able to mess with our emotions. And when they take you, they've got total control over you it seems to me, and they manipulate your emotion. You think about it, you're in a room <clears throat> with a insect looking being that's got big, big black wraparound eyes. Anyone would piss their pants in, like in front of such a being for, for real, right? They would be in terror. And yet what happens? They're very calm because frequently these beings will touch your head and you, and you, whether if there's pain, the pain goes away, or if there's terror, the terror dissipates. So they can control us, they manipulate us. And if any being that can do that, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to trust them, just blanket trust, like there's no way. It's and like they, pain medication going into uh, surgery. Yeah, like what yeah. they want is they want you to calm the hell down so they can do whatever they're doing. And they'll tell you whatever fun, happy little lie they're gonna tell you so that you don't give them a problem. And, but you experience that as love. And so people will like, it's like Helsinki syndrome, you know, like you, uh, you become, you're the hostage that comes to love your captor. And they can do that because they know how to get right into your brain, into our brains. We're not on the same level with them. Like they've got this great advantage over us. I'm not saying that they means they're evil. Maybe they have uh, a nice plan for us and we just, can't appreciate it and 
they need to calm us down. Okay, like, like we would do with an animal in the wild. All right, maybe. Even so, I'm with everyone else who's like, there's no reason to just give blanket trust to these beings. And I'm, that's not the same thing as saying, oh yes, yeah, so let's just roll over the, to the military industrial complex and hand over everything to them. No, it's, you can distrust both sources, frankly. You can distrust the intelligence community and you can also distrust these other beings. I'm like you, I'm, I'm open to the possibility that there's a bigger plan we don't know about. But then you see Lou is asked about psychotronic weapons and then the conversation turns to Havana syndrome and they say, is there a connection between Havana syndrome and UAP? And, he, and he's hinted that there is. He has said, it's too early right now. It's something people are looking into. I don't know if you've heard that, Richard, but it's like, really? So it's like, if that's true, it's like, that's not a positive thing. And like I said, I don't know what the yeah. agenda is. I'm not all negative. I don't know. I just want to consider all possibilities. It's just not, like you said, just a, assume that they're here to take us to the fourth dimension. And, I do know a there's a high level uh, scientist who knows a lot about this anomalous UFOs who is studying Havana syndrome. I don't know if there's a connection with the UAP or not. That, that I do not know. But yeah, maybe, I, maybe I mean, this is, this is something I can somewhat speak personally to. Um, you know, because I, I've had positive experiences, right? Um, and but part of my philosophy is you should never, you shouldn't put yourself in a position where you're reliant on trust of the phenomenon or anything else. So um, I I can understand why when people have that kind of experience, um, they are, you know, they they they're stuck with that impression. It's a powerful. Uh, overwhelming experience and it's easy to get locked into that in a way and you know I've questioned myself right I've had these experiences where I thought were super positive and even beneficial um, to some extent you know Jacques Vallée writes about uh, Dr. X in the Invisible College about he had the spiritual transformation uh, there's been reports of healings and, and things like that occur um, you know, not to plug my own podcast, you kind of have to have a meta perspective in a sense to be able to step back from that and, and look at the picture from an objective point of view. And that's not, that's not easy to do when you've had this experience, um, especially because the truth is sequestered. So you're left to your own devices. And that's why, you know, disclosure is you know partially so important because we don't have a consensus framework to work with to be able to define if something is you know good bad or indifferent you know individually or collectively as a planet so you know we're everybody's kind of stuck you know again put to their own devices and uh, to figure out their their own truth which is going to cause you know chaos in a sense so. Um, I, I do understand where people come from, and I, I, I've made a video called, you know, uh, you know, the phenomenon is accountable. That's a great video, ultimately. by the way. I love that video. Thanks. Yeah, because, you know, but that, we kind of have to have the disclosure first and before we can even move on to those kind of bigger questions, I think, because it's going to really take, you know, humanity and society to some extent being on the same page and being able to ask those questions and, and pool resources together to, to come to, you know, a greater determination of, you know, um, but getting back to, you know, I've, I've asked myself, you know, 
even though these experiences I've had seem super positive, you know, there's been multiple people with me who experienced similar things. Um, you know, is that some kind of manipulation? Is it some kind of screen memories, you know, and so on and so on. I've asked those tough questions and I don't, I don't know, you know. Or is it again, just a mixed bag? Could just be a mixed bag. There's good and bad. And Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, it's, I've had, you know, numerous positive encounters and, and you know, I can't, again, I, I can't explain why that is. And, uh, you know, I think other people investigating this scientifically have noted that, you know, some people just have bad experiences. Um, some people have good experiences, you know, both, um, you know, and uh, is, it, is it possible to turn that on or off? Um, so, you know, there's, there's a really a lot to that conversation. Kind of like um, UFO Twitter. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, let me, it's uh, a, let me ask the panel a question here. I, I just got this book. Actually, I've had it for a while. I haven't read it. It's been recommended to me. What do y'all think about this booking? And, uh, and oh. the... I don't know it. Oh, that's by Art Campbell. Wait, yeah. this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. Campbell book. Is that yeah, the one you're talking about, Danny? Yeah, yeah, man. Let's let's touch on this crash. Go ahead. Okay. I don't I don't uh, have much on it. I'm I'm uh, I think it's very compelling and interesting, but I'd like to hear everyone else's opinion actually. Okay. I have, yeah. I have it sitting on my shelf. Uh, I think I'm well, not right here in front of me, but yes. I I knew Art. He he died. Uh and I haven't read that book and I should actually go back over it now. I thought it was a very good book though. It's You're reading it currently? Case. Yes. Yeah, this, the San Augustine case. Um, you know, Chuck Wade was involved with that. They had materials and, you know, there would be these expeditions, uh, I believe starting in the 90s, but then again in, in, the, in the 2000s. Actually, Grant Cameron knew that one of the guys that was running the expeditions. And I believe Grant Cameron's friend is the guy who introduced this gentleman, Tim, to the site, um, you know. Wait, wait, wait which Tim? Tim Taylor. Oh, okay. Timothy Taylor. So it was actually Grant Cameron's anonymous uh, friend. He, he, didn't, he never told me the guy's name. Uh, some guy with a lot of money in Canada financed these expeditions. And that, that that's where these materials came from. And there were several types of materials, including this the honeycomb material that is talked about. And this, and this really- the triangle on it that we've seen pictures of, that Grant has shown pictures of, that came from San Augustine, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, the funny thing with that is that those, some of those shapes and hieroglyphs and stuff match like the Rendlesham stuff. You know, um, what, the, what Jim Pennington saw uh, when he touched the craft. So there's a lot of really, but, but again, the materials, and it says it right on the cover is this is later in years, because I guess maybe like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they, when they were looking at materials, they were limited, but when they found the materials from this crash, science had advanced. So when they looked at these materials, they were able to look at the isotopic ratios of the materials and um, you know, the, the materials seem like, okay, we know what, we know what aluminum, aluminum is. We know what this is. It's not like some kind of exotic space material, but the, the, purities, the purities of these materials are impossible by our standards to have like a 99% uh, 
pure aluminum. Um, people have speculated you have to make it in a zero gravity condition. And this, this crash is allegedly, uh, I believe, July 2nd, uh, 1947. So just like the day or two before Roswell is when this crash allegedly occurred. Um, and again, there were several materials. And I know some people said that, uh, you know, they were talking about one material and there was another one that was like uh, either the honeycomb or the, the one that was like frog skin that, you know, they were not allowed to talk about that <clears throat> material for whatever reason. And I think that these materials have been revisited even recently with, you know, new patents and devices and, you uh, you know, there, there are very interesting qualities. I think one quote from American Cosmic said, um, you know, it looks like this material is designed in a different universe. And uh, I don't know, I don't even know what that means. But in, in, just, in just, oh, one, just, just one thing I want to add to that is that, uh, you know, back a number of years ago, you know, Robert Bigelow was talking about how he wanted to be able to have, uh, you know, those, um, facilities in space the you know that you put it up there and it expands so you can possibly yeah yeah so you can possibly have a lab in outer space so you can create materials in a zero gravity condition i see the skeptics when uh, if if it does get proven that some of this was uh made in zero gravity and i think you know i don't think that's been proven obviously if it does right. get proven i see i see that would be the next uh, logical conclusion for the skeptics They'd say there's like secret uh, manufacturing plants in space or something that we aren't told about, and it's still man-made. That's my prediction. That, that's even yeah, going I, back yeah, to the I, 1940s. Well, yeah. you know, I, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous, but I think that's what that would, that'll be what they say next. They, yeah. they were already but, saying it. If you looked at um, what was the J.J. Abrams four-parter on UFO uh, in part. Three, they interviewed James Carrion, former MUFON international director. I couldn't get that far in the series. I was tapped out. Yeah, well, James, I mean, I've known James. <laughs> and he, um, he's, he doesn't call himself a skeptic, but I think he's, he's generally a skeptic on UFOs at this point. Anyway, they, they used him uh, heavily to make the point that all UFOs are our own experimental technology, even going back to the 1940s. Uh, and, and also, and this is just historically inverse from the reality, but uh, as a way to convince the Soviets that we actually had flying saucers. That's actually what they put out there. And I mean, I think that's an absurd thesis, but to your point, I could see skeptics doing this, like make, this is the next generation skeptical argument. It's not like, you know, it used to be all UFO stories were hoaxes and psycho, psychopathological persons and, you know, uh, crazy people. Uh, and we're not there anymore. And in fact, the Abrams special made that clear. It's like, you are not crazy for seeing UFOs. They actually are real. So that's kind of a cool thing. And then you realize where he goes with the rest of it is, yeah, we're kind of making them all. And also, by the way, John Mack kind of went native. He thought that there were abductions. There really aren't. It's probably no aliens. That's the whole takeaway from the four-part series. But you could see skeptics, um, you know, the new line of defense will be, and this is really the, the new official disclosure line of defense is the same thing. It's like, yeah, there actually are some UFOs out there, but we, you know, we got some secret technology. Um, it's either that, or there are things out there like, um, 
you know, what Lou used to say publicly, and he's gone much farther now, but well, there's something out there, we don't know what it is. Like that's the new acceptable line, but skeptics will definitely, I think, very likely go to the, yeah, we're making them secretly. Well, I but think that's, that's why the, the importance of doing panels like this and even Crash Retrieval Week and, and keeping this argument on the forefront, because this is where we need to go. And even people like Lou Alzando and, and Christopher Mellon have indicated that this is a, a serious um, you know, field of research where, I mean, they seem to think that there's something there. I mean, I think they've indicated more than that, but they, they can't publicly speak on it. And again, um, Joe Mercia gets this quote from somebody saying that uh, Dr. Davis ran the crash retrieval portfolio. And this guy's out there, you know, for years saying some of the most compelling things. And he's telling, he's basically telling his story of how he got into the program on um, the open minds thing with Alejandro Rojas. Uh, you know, you got to have a need to know, they have to have an ability to use you or, you know, what your, um, you know, your services are. Yeah, uh, um, you know, you can't just be anybody, and somebody's got to kind of recommend you, and you got to go to a skiff, and then uh, they can read you in, but not bring you into the program just in case you may have something to contribute. And you know, he goes along and, and tells the whole thing. Yeah, and and speaking of, you brought up Mellon, a quote that Mellon had given when he was on. It was right after the article. Can you guys see that screen now? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So right after the article came out in New York Times. Um, Michael Smirconish on CNN, as far as I know, one of maybe one or two people in the national media, media, maybe one who asked about that quote, and he asked Mellon, after reading the quote about off-world vehicles not made on this earth, he said, do you believe there's, there are objects in our possession, broadly defined, our possession that are from something other than this earth? And they're talking about, now, remember, Eric Davis did brief folks on Capitol Hill. And Mellon says, what I'll say about that is I think that assertion should be taken seriously. I know Eric very well. I understand his arguments. I was present in his briefings on the Hill, and he tried to provide some leads for them to follow to enable them to potentially confirm this. It's an issue that should be taken seriously. And then you see what's in the language now in the House uh, National Defense uh, Authorization Act. It talks about uh, an up they want an update on any efforts understanding on the ability to capture or exploit discovered and unidentified aerial phenomena. And they're talking about making, uh, going off site. So I'm thinking, and, and Lou Alzando has said, that's crash retrieval territory right there. So I'm hoping Eric Davis gave them enough information. You need to go here, here, here. This is where this is. Talk to this person. And hopefully they'll take that, you know, they'll bring somebody with them who has access, maybe the secretary of defense. Uh, I don't know who would have access that Admiral Wilson did not have access. I don't know how much higher above him. I don't know if it makes a difference. Maybe, Richard, do you know, would the Secretary of Defense have access to that program? In theory, the Secretary of Defense would have access, but in practice, the question is, would, would he practically be able to or desire to access some of those programs? Because if you read the, uh, Eric Davis's notes from that meeting uh, with Wilson from 2002, and I I'm guessing most people following this are at least somewhat familiar now with the whole Davis Wilson leak notes controversy. Uh, Wilson tried and failed when he was um, deputy director of intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1997 to get access to a, a special access program that dealt with reverse engineering alien tech. But he got he got some information, and five years later, he's telling Davis about it in this private interview. But um, 
Yeah, the, within the Department of Defense, you've got uh, something known as SAPOC, the Special Operations Oversight Committee. And within that, you have something called the SRG, the Senior Review Group. And those, those are very, like the smallest handful of people. Chris Mellon had access to the Senior Review Group. He was part of the Senior Review Group at one point uh, after Wilson was there, but Christopher Mellon knows about this. Uh, he wasn't in charge of it, I don't believe, but he was part of it. So a few people would have access and the SECDEF would in theory have access, but that doesn't mean that he would. And that doesn't also, that doesn't mean that any of them would really be involved too, because all of those programs, as we could see in those notes, are dominated by the private contractor, probably Lockheed in this case, but it could be any of the others. It could be Raytheon, it could be Boeing, it could be, you know, a number of others. And, and it absolutely looks like you've got the DOD personnel are basically liaisons and a very few of them, like three or four maybe, might be involved in an annual review of those special access programs and basically check off their budget for the next year. But it's not clear that they, at least this is, we're talking 20 years ago, because this is really all that we know. I don't know what's going on today, but um, it's not clear that they really had any operational authority over this. There was an article that was, that was sent to me, it was referred to me by one of the people in that whole crowd. So you talk about the, the Bigelow crowd, whether, you know, which includes uh, Eric Davis and Hal Puthoff and Kit Green and Colm Kelleher and Edgar Mitchell and Jacques Vallée, he's part of it. So one, one of the, that group forwarded an article to me written by Bill Sweetman, an aviation writer from 2000 who wrote an article for Jane's International Defense, January of 2000. And this is still an, a valid article. And it, it talks directly to this problem. And it's called um, In Search of the Pentagon's, oh, what the hell, Pentagon's Black Budget Programs and Special Access Programs. Anyway, anyone can search it out. And Sweetman, I don't know where he was getting this from, but he was, saying the same thing. It's like the Pentagon has these special access programs. This is in 2000. Very few people were writing about this. And he said, it, it's certainly my investigation it, it was that the military is basically, they're, they're dominated by the private contractors and all these military people, when they retire, they go off to work in private industry to make a million bucks. And they're, that's when they really get access. And and I think that's exactly somehow this coat too, didn't he? Kit, I was just gonna say Kit Green. I did an uh, interview with Kit uh two years ago. So not long ago, holy crap. And he said the exact same thing to me. He said, when you retire from senior government service, he said, and you go into private industry, your clearances go higher and better and more powerful because it's private industry where all the action is, where the money is, and it's where all the really deep, profound scientific research goes. He said, that happened to me. My clearances got way better when I left the CIA. And, I, and, and so I think he, he argued that that's almost universal. I just, wanna, I just want to interject real quick for posterity, because I know a lot of skeptics are going to be watching this. Here's a question I have. Well, first of all, Elizondo recently stated, and I'd have to double check, I don't remember the interview, but I, I recall that he stated that that he, he used to leave open the door a little more for it being adversarial. 
but now he's at a stage where he doesn't do that as much. And the reason he said he did that was that so that it would be less overwhelming for people. And I think his, his rhetoric reflects that. He has been going less in the direction of, well, maybe it's China and Russia, and has been sort of focusing more on the probability that it is uh, more exotic than that. But what I wanted to state was, if there's nothing to this, then, then I mean, just today, was it today that the administrator of NASA gave credence to the UAP issue and suggested that it might be tied to extraterrestrials? If there's nothing to this, then why has nobody from the US government come out and thrown cold water on this? Why have no military officials, whether from the Navy or the Air Force, with credentials come out and say, you know, we have all the sensor data, everyone, and I got to be honest with you, what Fravor saw and what uh, a coin saw and all these other technicians, Gary Voorhees saw, it was this, and we really should kind of distance ourselves from this rhetoric that's starting to spread everywhere, including 60 Minutes, including Fox News, CNN, uh, The New Yorker, The New York Times. Nobody from the U.S. government has come out and done that. And you have to ask yourself if, if, if they really are so certain that this is just adversarial technology and have the sensor data to prove that, then why have they curtailed that sort of effort to, to diminish conspiracy theories that are inevitably starting to get emboldened and starting to spread and people are giving more credence to the proposition that it's extraterrestrial. That to me, is a, that's a bizarre situation that we're in. And I have not heard any skeptic give a good answer as to why the US government has not thwarted this conversation if they in fact are capable of doing so. What would hold them back from doing that? I think their answer would be it's black technology and they're not going to talk about it. So they'll let the UFO ET theory hang out there while they will not tell us about that. Well, that's fine, but that's just I'm not saying it is black technology. I'm just saying yeah, that's theory. No, but I just want to say like that, that in of itself is still a conspiracy theory. So it's like it's almost impossible <laughs> to engage this issue objectively without going in some kind of conspiracy theory. Because if, if your whole rhetoric is, right. well, they're 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 just they're not good at what they do. They're just, they're stupid. They're incompetent. That doesn't really fly. That, that to me is, is sort of a desperate argument to make. They could do something and they haven't done it. They could do something and they haven't done it. But it's also right. important to note there that Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA was briefed on this. So he, he was part of the classified briefings. And I believe prior he was in the armed service committee. I mean, Jason he, Colavito has gone so far to say that the Congress had been radicalized just because they're giving credence to UFOs. Now, you, now uh, the, 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 the Harvard scientist Avi Loeb has said that he, he knows, he's knows of no organization that is more conservative than the US government. And, and, now, and now we have all these members of Congress, some of them who have presidential aspirations, instead of being like, oh, then yeah, let's distance ourselves from UAP. Instead of <clears> it, we have people like Marco Rubio saying, saying things on the record like, you know what? I hope that these objects that we're encountering, that our navies, I hope that, uh, that it is extraterrestrial or exotic, more so than that it's China or Russia, because that would put us in bigger trouble. And, and the administrator of NASA, Bill Nelson, said the same exact thing. And yet skeptics have failed to give a cogent persuasive argument as to why what's happening is happening. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead, James. I wanted no, to talk about seating real quick. Can we get into seating before we're done? Just, uh, it's part of this lore, you know, especially since Corso. And am I mistaken, but Lou brought it up recently, guys? Are talking about seating technology, Danny? Yeah, it's a private industry. Didn't, mm -hmm. Lou, didn't Lou mention that recently? He did mention, he said, he goes, 
theoretically, if there's aerospace company A, aerospace company B, one of them gets exotic technology and goes on to create amazing stuff, aerospace yes. company B goes bankrupt. That's major liability down the line with lawsuits. I just want to add. So let's be honest, it happens. I mean, it, it probably happens. It sounds like many, it many years ago, someone in that whole crowd told me the exact same thing, exact same words. Uh, and when, when Lou talked about this in his uh, recent interview, he said, well, hypothetically, he yeah. popped that word in there. But I, I'm just going to say to you, I was told privately by someone that Lou knows very well, um, years ago, many years ago, who said, it is my, uh, I think he said my knowledge, he made it very clear to me that he said every five or 10 years, there are, there are, um, how do you put it? There are fresh, there's a fresh review within the classified world to discuss, essentially discuss disclosure. Is this a good idea or not a good idea? And he said, I personally was part of a little subcommittee that dealt with legal implications of disclosure. And he's not even a lawyer, I don't think. No, he's not a lawyer. Um, but he was part of this little group. And he said, this was, this was an issue that came up, defense contractor preferential treatment. When you have SEC uh, publicly owned companies and one company gets an unfair advantage in terms of seeded technology where they can make a ton of money and their competitor doesn't. And if you've got this technology, you can get defense contracts you can get all kinds of opportunities that, the, that your competitor does not get. And he said, this, this was one of the problems that was raised as a very like sticky issue. So I'm just telling you, this is more, well more than a decade ago that I had that conversation with this particular individual. And when I heard Lou say it in that interview, um, I, was, I was like, oh gosh, yeah. They obviously really talked to each because, other. Uh... I, I'm, I get burnt out on subjects because of all the arguing. I was really burnt out on Roswell. Lou mentioned Roswell. Um, I think it was during the MUFON meeting uh, years ago. And now he said he's 100% on it. So now I'm back. I'm back on Roswell. It's the problem. He, this and it's the same thing with seating stuff. I mean, I, people were burnt out on it. You know, we don't know what's true in the course of the book and what's not. Um, skeptic was, trolls will beat us to death. Yeah. And, and this is what happens. It's like, oh, I give up. But then Lou brings all this back and it's like, I'm back now. So, well, um, even and even uh, Eric Davis said in that in an interview with Alejandro Rojas, he said, I checked out um, Corso's claims. Oh, yeah. I looked into Corso's claims about, you know, the recovered and slow integration of technology and they checked out. So he was saying that he, he went and tried to find out if some of that was true. And basically, yeah, uh, you know, some of what Corso was saying has validity to it regarding the foreign technology developments. And, and Luke keeping... consistently right. gets uh, accused of not going far enough or not saying new information. And he's bringing a lot of these subjects back um, in a big way, I think. The thing with Corso too, people, you know, um, really criticized Corso. There were a lot of um, obvious mistakes in uh, his book, The Day After Roswell, when it came out in 1997. Uh, that should have been fact-checked better, and that that did not help him. Um, but you know, one of the things was you know he's working under General uh, Arthur Trudeau, nineteen sixty sixty one, and so this is thirteen years after Roswell. So what what comes what what I always felt was that 
you know, his, his group was like one, one group that had some of this technology. And you have to assume that a lot of this was seeded even earlier than that. But somehow Trudeau's office had access to this technology and nothing had been done with it. That's an odd thing to think about, but you know, it doesn't strike me as completely impossible either. And let's not forget Harry Reid that in the, in the New Yorker story, Harry Reid wanted to, he asked Lockheed Martin, I don't know what channels he went through, but he basically asked Lockheed Martin to get answers on whether they are in possession of some sort of crash retrieval. And he was basically told he, he, he's not going to be given such kind of access. Now they didn't say we're not giving you access because there's crash retrievals, but they're like, they basically ended the conversation, which was pretty interesting. They, they said, and Reed said, I don't know why they wouldn't want to put this to sleep unless there's something to it that I don't understand. And exactly. he was part of the gang of eight. And that, that needs to be. Uh, I, I think at that point, I'm, I could be. Oh, OK, OK. I think he was just a regular senator at that point because I read that today because I thought he had said he was part of the gang, gang of eight, too. But I think he was just a, a, a junior senator at that point. I'm just going to strike anyone to this poor story. Oh. And it's hmm. and uh, it just it fascinates me when Lou backs up the core story, core lore of the UFO community that's been going on for decades. And it just it really seems like a lot of it is there. A lot of the crash retrieval stuff, the seeding abduction so much so much of this seems to be true now that's why i don't think he's a disinformation agent but personally yeah. because everything oh, no he says is basically aligning with the ufo historical record so if he's a disinformation agent why is he casting so much light on everything that a lot of people into this subject already believe how would that equate to a disinformation agent now, i guess they would say well he's putting some truths in and some lies okay what are the lies exactly, exactly. that we don't know if it's a, yeah. we don't know it's a threat or not well we don't know it's a threat or not <laughs> They're trying to fool the Russians. That's the people say, oh, Eric Davis is just trying to make the Russians think that we have a craft that's for a strategic advantage. I don't think that's the case. Let me share just one more quote because yeah, Danny- It's so easy up, to fool the Russians on that. Danny oh yeah, we have a UFO. Danny brought up the core story. And a lot of people don't know this quote. It's So it's from Mirage Men, the book. So simply put, the core story, according to Kit Green, is this. And this is quoting Green. The ETs came here maybe once, maybe a few times, either through accident or design. The United States government acquired one of their craft. The only problem was that the physics that powered the craft were so advanced that for decades, we humans have struggled to understand it or to replicate it. And then Pilkinson says, it may have not been much, but hearing this information from a man of Kit Green's caliber and background, the effect was akin to a small nuclear device going off in your head. I asked him to repeat his statement, and he did. The aliens have been here. Kit casually mentioned the nickname of the three bears given to the three ET craft allegedly in U.S. possession. And, I, and, and, Kit, and Kit has now changed his mind just to keep it fair. Yeah, he's conservative, and he, goes, agree with oh, and he did say that. He did, did say that in the book. Yeah. He's walked way back from uh, that position, I think, at least uh, officially. <laughs> Yes. The three bears makes me think of the 1988 uh, ARV story that came out of uh, Bradford Sorensen as told to Mark McCandlish when Sorensen is at Lockheed Hellendale facility in 19 November 88. And he goes into a uh, hangar, the big hangar there. And he sees, I think those three craft, it was behind a big uh, curtain and they were small, medium, and large. I think they were called mama bear, papa bear, and baby bear. And they were hovering flying saucer craft and there was a four-star, I think it was a four-star at a podium talking about them, describing them as the ARV, the Alien Reproduction Vehicles. These were supposedly 
Now, I guess the, in that story, then these would be our attempts to reproduce alien tech. But it's just interesting, the three bears. I didn't remember Mr. Being that. the historian that you are, how do you think this lore and this core story came out and now there's just more credence to it uh, all these decades later. What, what do you mean came happen? out? Like it, it came out through research. There was no crash retrieval credence whatsoever until the 1970s. Like no, no one in UFO research back in those early years believed that there were genuine crash retrievals of UFOs. We all know this, like when Roswell happened, it was de debunked in the newspapers immediately. The Aztec crash was written about by Frank Scully in 1950. It was debunked almost immediately. And, um, and so UFO researchers stayed far away. So within the classified world, I have no idea how widespread the core story was. I just don't know. But I do know it, it started coming out in uh, Leonard Stringfield was one of the most important people and Stanton Friedman who met with Jesse Marcel Sr. So I can only say publicly that whole scenario really didn't come out until the late 70s and in the 1980s. And uh, guys like Green and Hal Putoff, it's not clear to me that they were read into anything back in those days. I don't, I don't think, actually, I don't think they were. Uh, they may have known a few things, but I think what they did is, and some of their colleagues, they just rooted around and, and um, talked to people in the classified world who had clearances that you and I don't. And I guess I don't entertainment and movies had a lot to do with this, just being put into the public mind. Yeah, well, none of this was in the public mind really much prior to 1980. Uh, it was researchers who did this first, and it was only after the researchers uh, started doing serious work. I mean, the first Roswell book came out in 1980 by Bill Moore and Charles Berlitz, if you can believe it. And Stan Friedman was an unacknowledged author in that. And uh, it was only starting in the 80s that Hollywood really starts. I mean, there was Spielberg earlier than that. But in terms of like Area 51 and uh, you know reverse engineering, all of that came much later. And that was after researchers had already dove deep into it. It didn't come from Hollywood. Hollywood glommed onto what UFO researchers were already doing. Interesting. Yep. Does it strike anyone else as odd that like the state, the recent statement by the head of NASA um, that one of you guys referred to, it's like, yeah, you know, there's, uh, there's a big universe and there's could be extraterrestrial. And like, it's like, it's very odd to me that you have more and more of these high level defense people, even like former heads of the CIA saying, yeah, it's, you know, it's very interesting. These videos, like they're giving little bits of credence here and there. Uh, no one's saying we know it's extraterrestrial. But it's almost as if they're pretending like all of this is a new phenomenon. Like, oh, wow, we're just discovering for the first time that there are these UAP. Like, there is a UFO phenomenon through the 40s and through the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s that was hardcore that involved, you know, we have an FBI document uh, following, I mentioned the um, green fireball phenomenon in uh, New Mexico, 1948-49. FBI was following that whole thing. You know, when all the military scientists were coming in to discuss this, and they're saying, we've got, we've got trackings of objects moving at 
9,000 miles per hour, I think was the statement that they had in there, like multiple thousands of miles per hour at high altitudes that we could not attain 100,000 feet. You know, the U-2 spy plane 10 years later didn't even reach that altitude. So they've got all of this that they've written about that they know scientists in the late 40s, like that's tic-tac UFO capability. When Fravor is talking about how the tic-tac UFO departed in 2004, he said, I had a perfect line of sight for 10 miles. And in fact, he had, I had a practical line of vision for like 50 miles. All right, so let's just take the 10 miles. He said, this thing was out of my vision, range of vision in two seconds. So if you really wanna just take him at his word, do the math, you're talking, I think that's like 9,000 miles per hour. All right, it's ridiculous, right? They might even be faster than that. So you're talking instant acceleration. Well, you know, here's the thing. All of this was being recorded decades before. And, and it's as if these government people like are totally oblivious to all of that history as if it never happened. And the only, the only conclusion I can, well, one of the conclusions I can reach is because these government officials are totally locked out of any kind of genuine information because all of that's become totally privatized and all those old records are gone. I asked Lou about the old records, the old uh, historical cases when he was at ATIP. He said, I had no access to any of that stuff. None of it. We were looking at current cases. So there's no history. And, and I have to believe that that is by design. And if there is a government operation that has the history they don't have access to it, but it's very possible that that history is all privatized. It's locked away in special access programs, totally possible, or it's gone international to some extent and it's beyond US government control. So now you have got a situation where the US government players are basically, they're as helpless as anyone else. Rubio, yeah, he's probably got no information on this. And even maybe some of these former CIA people have no information on it either. In fact, I think that's the case. I think that they're they're locked out. I think they're locked out. I think the real information's beyond them. And hopefully, getting access to it is gonna be one hell of a problem. Yeah, hopefully my main concern would be they, they destroy documents or destroy evidence. Um, you know, that's like a nightmare scenario. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, well, it's I, possible. I, I think there's too much value that they would destroy it, but it, it I mean, you never know. They there's. I still think that there's stuff that, you know, may never come out. That's always a possibility that it. They may just, destroy it. Yeah. Like because there's a, so much money involved in this. This is the thing. Skeptics like they're clueless about this. The amount of money involved in this technology is beyond astronomical. Like, and to share it could destroy entire industries. Like yeah. if you if you got actual anti grav, okay. What's that going to do to the airline industry? Sure, there's under other industries that'll come up, but like if you're running, if you're running Lockheed, let's say, and you have access to this information, do you really want this out? There goes your business plan. Like every person off the street might be able to figure out a way to replicate some of this very advanced tech. And where where do you end up on the other side of that whole thing? Yeah. Well, and I think an important thing too is that. Um, you know, like people being locked out of these programs, uh, you know, I think that was basically, uh, you know, proven or I don't want to say proven, but I mean, it's a strong indicators that, you know, what Lou describes in ATIP and how we saw all that unfold, um, 
is an indicator that people were out of chain of command who should have been. And, you know, it comes to they have to have this UAP task force, and then they have to be briefed after that. And they're kind of like, what the hell is going on? And then, yeah, again, like John Brennan and even James Wolsey now going on the record <clears throat> saying, you know, they probably, okay, they feel more comfortable. It's being talked about publicly. There's videos, uh, there's a program. So they probably contacted their contacts and said, is this real? And they were probably told, yeah. You know, I think that's, you know, basically what's going on behind the scenes that, you know, all these people with their connections now uh, are more comfortable to ask and they're getting the acknowledgement through whatever sources they have that, uh, you know, there's a there there. Yeah. And one of the, well, Eric, Eric Davis was asked in an interview with, with Stephen Greenstreet about that. And he said that whether or not the government knows more and he says, yeah, they know more. He goes, they just ignore it, sweep it under the rug. Uh, and they said they just hold on to information and it just collects cobwebs in the classified storage warehouses. Hopefully those warehouses stay intact. The Indiana yeah. Jones warehouse. Yeah. Imagine being yeah. in that warehouse. <laughs> well, and actually, you know, on the theory of everything, Lou Elizondo was talking about rogue programs. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say it this way, but it almost sounded like telling the story that that uh dr stephen greer has been telling for 20 right. years about mm -hmm. the unacknowledged special access program exactly james and, and when people don't when people hate each other or i don't want to say hate when people aren't even affiliated with each other and it's still across the board that's the core story and that's what uh that's what well it, it, it's just uh it, it's really hard to not believe it at that point yeah anything and else again, one says about greer like greer was right onto this in the 90s he was right on it he was right on that whole rogue program. This is what brought him to meet with Thomas Wilson in 1997 and obviously other people. And I think, I think this is one thing where he was 100% right. Uh, yeah, and again, if in the Theory of Everything uh, interview, Lou Elizondo is like almost saying verbatim what, what Greer has been saying about these programs. Yeah. And um, again, I think <clears throat> it, it's been made clear by how we've seen the rollout of ATIP um, how chain of command was nullified at some point. And it's, it looks like Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, and I, I've heard Christopher Mellon kind of hint at this before, and they're talking about the exact title, which makes for the waived US, um, UAP, uh, uh, SAPs, the waived SAPs, he gives the exact title number, like 109 or something, section 109, and how um, they're allowed to waive these SAPs um, because it, it could be, uh, you know, a detriment to national security, you know, and then it comes into question, well, has that been, that power been abused? Is it justified? You know, whatever the case, it, it seems like that's what's been done. And that people like Elizondo and Christopher Mellon and other, many other people behind the scenes have been trying to, you know, readminister that chain of command. Uh, so there can be some some kind of acknowledgement and, and, you know, at least everybody's on the same page with, yeah, this is real. What the hell are we going to do about it? And, and, and Elizondo coming out led to Eric Davis briefing uh, governmental uh, briefing Senate staffers, giving them leads to where to look for a crash retrieval program. And so, you know, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but it's like if he's a disinformation agent, why has he facilitated someone like Eric Davis giving congressional staffers leads 
for where to pursue a potentially rogue, rogue program involved with studying UAP that had been retrieved. So there's, there's that as well. And by Wait, the George? way, Mel Mellon said he was there during that, during that briefing. Yeah. Joe and I have talked about something, you know, we're uh, worried, I would say, I don't want to speak for Joe, but we're talking <laughs> about basically the military industrial complex, the biggest private contractors in the world, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind had the, the Lockheed uh, boxes with the Lockheed <laughs> logos on it. I mean, this is nothing new. So uh, Joe and I have spoken, you know, um, how are, how will even Congress, how does Congress even have enough power to make this happen? I'm not so sure. Um, and that's, that's the real scary thing. Um, but uh, it just, it just, it definitely seems to be true. Um, a lot of this, uh, it just seems to be accurate and it's, and it isn't a new thing, but I just hope that they're able to crack into this somehow, some way. And I just, but I don't see it happening, to be honest with you. I, I'll tell but you why I see, I'll tell you why I see it happening. I see it happening because here's the problem. If, if this continues and assuming it exists, if this continues to keep getting sequestered away, everyone knows, including the people involved, that eventually it's going to come out into the open. So what is going to be the blowback if they make it come to the surface within the next, say, year or two versus it inevitably comes to the surface within the next 20 years? Now, if it was to come to the surface in 20 years after the Congress have literally been pursuing answers to the question of whether there is a crash retrieval program, it would the, the, the fallout of, of a lack of trust between constituents and the American public and the government would be so catastrophic that it would be a national security catastrophe beyond imagination. I don't know what would happen to, to the populace of the United States. What, what, what would happen to the Congress? What would happen to our representatives? They, it would be so overwhelming. So my perspective is there's gotta be people inside the US government that are mature enough and are patriotic enough and love their country enough to where they're like, yo, let's uh, get this out sooner rather than later. Because if, if it inevitably comes out 20 years from now, it could literally be the end of, of, of a relationship and trust between government and the populace as we know it. So I'm- Why do you think hoping- that? I mean, I, I, that's, I'm not really sure I understand the logic on that, Ryan. Like, first of all, there's very little trust now, but you're saying if, Am I understanding that if the UAP task force doesn't really get to the heart of this now, and if it if it comes out twenty years from now, that the trust will be blown? My my my, my argument is that the trust is going to be blown no matter what, but but the the extent of of lost trust between our institutions, scientific, journalistic, academic, and the populace twenty years from mm-hmm. now, it coming out versus it coming out now, it's going to be exponentially more intense if it happens 20 years from now, particularly because for the first time, our Congress is literally pursuing answers to these questions. So it's one thing to keep a secret when Congress is not really pursuing it in, a, in, a, in an over the top way. But mm-hmm. it's another thing when Congress is actually pursuing answers and according to the constitution, according to our laws, they have to be given answers. I think trust would, would deteriorate way more if it comes out 20 years from now than if it comes out within the next two or three years. I could be wrong about that, but that's mm-hmm. my perspective. Okay, just everybody, uh, Joe Marcia, Joe's got to go. Joe, uh, can you hear me? Yes, and I enjoyed it, guys. uh, Continue the conversation. I have to go to work. Uh, It's been fun. It's been great. Uh, Thanks for everything, Joe. You've been awesome, and I loved the little slideshow you did, and uh, we're looking forward to speaking again soon, man. Yep, same here. Talk to you soon, guys. See you. Take care. So, Richard, I'd love to get your take. So you don't think that the trust would deteriorate more if it came out 20 years from now versus if it came out, let's say, within the first year or two? It's like, let me let me get let me give an analogy. It's like, yeah, it's like your spouse is asking you questions. Right. 
and you're lying to them. They're finally, they're, they're, they never asked you questions before, but now your spouse is asking you questions and you're lying to them. And then 20 years from them, they get the truth versus they're asking you questions and you're like, oh no, my spouse is asking me questions. No, no they, I, I hear you. Then, I totally, I totally get it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've thought about this many times as well, but the fact is we've gone through this little dance, like 40, 50 years ago, there was the Condon Committee, which was the Air Force sponsored analysis of UFOs. And they were like, there's nothing to this. And, you know, there's constantly been, you know, 10 years ago, there was uh, my pal, Stephen Bassett organized a petition to the Obama White House to get an answer on the existence of extraterrestrials and UFOs. Uh, it was a, it was a digital petition that has since been pulled, but it, you could do it at Obama. Yeah. yeah, I remember and, that. And we got the most, this is in 2011, I think. And I was, I was kind of vaguely uh, involved in that. And we got the most ridiculous, stupid answer from the Obama White House. No, there's no engagement in UFOs, no evidence that they're here. Meanwhile, ATIP was actually going at this time. Yeah. And I mean, all, there were lies and lies and lies. There's always but the, lies. But, but in 20 years from now, this is what I think. The fallout would be 20 years, in my opinion. Because there's, there's years. so much more pressure now for, for this to come out than there was in 2011. And so with all this pressure and, and, and the Congress is still not getting answers, that, that, that is going to be looked back at 20 years from now. Like, I just think that it would just be catastrophic, the amount of trust that would be dissolved as a result of that versus they come out now with all this new pressure that, that really has never come to the fore before. Yeah, I know there were there was congressional hearings in the 60s and stuff, but I still don't think it's it's comparable. And also you have to recognize that there, there's a, a cumulative factor, right? So this is all accumulating. So you can't say this is just a repetition of the past because it's in addition to the past. So it only makes their lies all that much more egregious because it's all, the, 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 the evidence for it is, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and just their blatant lies. I totally feel it. I feel your just, pain. It's just, it's just, would just be so much worse. Is what I'm I saying. feel your pain. And I agree with you in principle. Like I totally agree with you in principle, but look, I mean, we're in an era now where all of these truth bombs have been coming out for the last four years, starting with, uh, you know, TDSA and Lou and like these statements that this is real. And there's been, I've been waiting for the avalanche effect. I wrote about this 10 years ago. I wrote a book after disclosure, co-authored. And in our attitude, when we wrote this in 2010, it was a different universe. Uh, social media was still kind of like free, especially you know Facebook and Twitter. And the idea was, if something big comes out, this could cause like an avalanche effect. And, and here we are now, like we've had one truth bomb after another coming out for the last four plus years. And we're still like inching along and with no historical understanding of the UFO phenomenon in our public space. Like there's, you know, it's like UFO started in 2004 with the Tic Tac. It's like, there's no understanding of anything before, no mention of a cover-up, God forbid, cover-up. That's why you've got these, these high-level politicians like, well, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's something going on. No one wants to admit that there's been government lies for 70 plus years. It's already been going on for all of these an entire human lifetime. But 20 years from now, my biggest fear, the hell with disclosure. My biggest fear is 20 years from now, you're going to be living in a complete beyond China totalitarian digital surveillance system in which we think we're dumbed down now. I mean, it's just, I think it's, it's very likely to be vastly worse in another 20 years where propaganda and total control over fringe opinions, pushing them out 
will be very, very effective at this point. And by then you could probably have everyone being plugged in with their own version of futuristic Neuralink and whatever. Uh, we could be we could be in a full blown, like true worst nightmare Orwellian totalitarian society 20 years from now, in which case any kind of disclosure rollout when people are plugged into some kind of, you know, uh, virtual reality that they probably live in because the real world will, may suck so badly. Uh, yeah, it'll be very easy to control that narrative. So I, I think I think we may have a window, a disclosure window that may be closing, not opening. And if it goes for another five years like this, maybe that window will be closed. So that's my very pessimistic view. I, I hope to be wrong, but I don't know. I think like if, if I were gambling on secrecy and if I were gambling on anti-disclosure, I would be gambling on the victory of a global totalitarian system that just shuts this whole thing down. That's Let me my go fear. off on a tangent uh, real quick, guys. I'd like to hear what everyone thinks about this because I've heard this floated behind the scenes. Um, I'm not sure if it's accurate or not. The idea that the UFO community is kind of getting thrown a bone at this point. They're getting thrown a stake to the dogs over the fence, and but they're not giving us the, uh, the full meal. Now, would that be something that they would do to um that would that would work or is it just going to make all the dogs more hungry i mean what do you guys think do you I think, think that's going to make all the dogs more hungry because i think i think this this scenario that has been going on for so many decades could not survive without ridicule so the ridicule factor and the in the in the laugh, laughing factor has facilitated all of the lies that have been told and when you take that away or, you, or, or that the laughing factor or the ridicule factor starts to diminish, now you have people like Ross Colthart who are go, going after it and writing books. You have people like Tom Rogan who are going after it and writing books or writing articles. You have Congress who are pursuing answers to questions that they have never pursued before. And furthermore, you've given them a taste that they've never had before. Now, Richard Dolan can, can correct me if I'm wrong, but... I know, there were, I know there were hearings in the 60s, but what I don't think took place then is they were not given classified briefings. And according to Elizondo, when these classified briefings took place, they were given way higher fidelity data than we were given. So they weren't just looking yeah. at fuzzy videos of like the GoFast or the Nimitz or uh, the Gimbal. Gimbal they were seeing such much higher fidelity data. So when you take all of these various factors in a holistic way and you acknowledge them, I think that, well, let me just say it. The house of cards is falling, baby. <laughs> yeah, and what I'm going to have to think about it. Are we getting thrown a bone or is this? Uh, is I don't know. I, actually, I love what Ryan just said. I, I actually, that's, that's great. And I don't think it's being thrown a bone. Because that, that plays into the idea that this is all some kind of op. And yeah, I, I, I don't believe it is. I think, I think that's t wrong. I think that's wrong. So what I think is when you talk about people like Lou Elizondo, Christopher Mellon, Hal Putoff, um, and Derek Davis, these, these are not, they are not doing disinfo on us. It makes me crazy when I've heard there's a couple of very prominent vocal people who just keep screaming, this is an op, this is disinformation. And what this really is, is a faction. There's, there are always factions who have different levels of access who don't always agree with the party line. You go back 2000 years, Caesar and Pompey and Crassus were factions. Like 
It's just every ruling elite has factions and the UFO secrecy group has had factions as well. I've known about this for years. And I just think that these guys are a faction, the Bigelow group, I sometimes will call them. And they believe in greater level of openness. I'm not saying they believe in total disclosure. I don't think that they do actually, but they believe in more openness and more truthful discussion on this subject in the public realm. And I know that was one of them explicitly said that to me. And they have friends on the inside and they have enemies as, as well on the inside. They've got definite enemies. This is a war that's going on behind the scenes. So what I think's happened is that this faction has thrown what they can like out to the public without breaking laws. They can't do that, mm -hmm. but they, they've, they've made their play. This is like a gambit. They've done what they can do and, they've, and they have absolutely helped change the public conversation on UFOs. But the problem is they don't have infinite power. There's a lot of power on the other side of that that still wants to shut them down. So I think that's what we're seeing. So I think we've gotten a bone and, you know, once, and, and there are allies like Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal, you know, who, who got, who fought, I think, fought with the New York Times to get those articles in there. And I think that's what happened. And the New York Times, which has always been on the side of the establishment, always been on the side of disinformation, at least in the last, you know, long, long period of time, uh, the New York Times did this. Uh, I think is a way to get ahead of the story because I think, you know, TTSA had already come out in October of 2017. It was obvious that the ATIP program was going to be revealed. It, it was obviously going to be revealed. So then, you know, Leslie and Ralph convinced the Times, okay, let's do this. And they were able to write their story. So they're allies. And so once the New York Times puts the story out, then other news media are like, oh, well, we can actually discuss this a little bit. And a few like Tucker Carlson over at Fox, like he jumps in. And there's a few other mainstream-ish people who are also jumping in. And so it, it's kind of given permission. So this is like, this is a good thing if you're on the disclosure faction, but it's a problem if you're on the other side. And there's a lot of people on that other side in my view. Why do you yeah, think Ossap was happening? left out? What? Why do you think Ossap was left out of the original story? A lot of people have been asking this question. That Ossap was left out. We really haven't heard about it. Maybe it was too woo, well, quote unquote. Elizondo was part of ATIP. He was uh, ATIP was a subdivision of Ossap, and Ossap what closed down. I don't remember when Ossap closed down way before ATIP. Yeah, 2010, yeah. 2010, I think. Yeah, oh, so it was gone. It it didn't exist. And Elizondo, a little, two, two uh, he didn't talk about Ossap. Great, thank you. So I just think, I think Lou talked about this in his interview again with Kurt Jamungal just the other day. And he gave the impression that uh, maybe more information about OSAP will come out, but I don't know why, except that Lou is part of the ATIP program and he got on board with TTSA. And so we learned about it through him. That's what I think, I don't know. James, you wanna chime in? Uh, yeah, I was going to say that makes sense. Lou's the guy who came forward. He was the one willing to kind of put his stuff on the line, and that's why we heard about ATIP. Um, but even though in, in the article, it seems like they were referring to some stuff that was involved with OSAP because of the BAS contract. Um, but, uh, you know, when we're talking about the, uh, what you were asking before, um, are we being thrown a bone? And, uh, you know, I, I agree with Rich here, and I, I think that, you know, you have these factions they're competing and 
I think that they made their play like they're for a long time. Um, you know, they, there have been these factions for a long time. It's not, this is not something new. Uh, even, uh, you know, Dr. Greer used to talk about this, but he used to call them the actual majestic group. And he said that actually 70% of them were in favor and, you know, were quietly supporting the disclosure project, project starlight, um, you know, even people within these groups. Um, but they didn't want to get too involved because they were concerned about what the, 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 the other group would do, but the other group was significantly smaller. Um, but they were, um, what he called cutthroat. Um, and I, I think that part of the, the thing, I think that part of the equation was an illusion that this, the smaller more group that was willing to go to extremes, um, could somehow stop the the greater, larger group who were in favor of disclosure within these factions, within the intelligence community, within um, financial communities, um, you know what people call the cabal and majestic. And I think that was kind of an illusion, and that they they you know the the larger group who's in favor of disclosure made their play. They're seeing progress, and I I, I think that it's not going to stop. And I think that illusion is going to break down. I think they're kind of in the safe zone now, um, not where, um, you know, disclosure is going to happen no matter what, but it's, it's, it, it's clear to me that, you know, it's, it's continuing to gain momentum and I don't know how that momentum is going to be stopped. I agree. And I think um, just to answer some of my own questions, you know, uh, that wasn't me. I'm, I'm quoting other people. I'm asking those questions. And I just wanted to address it. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, Lou didn't feel at liberty to speak about it, OSAP, at the beginning. And it wasn't even public. We didn't know OSAP was a thing when the, um, when the New York Times articles came out. So that would yeah, definitely right. be the reason for that. Um, and then as far as the, uh, the throwing a bone stuff, you know, that, that wasn't me speaking either. That was um, something I've heard. But um, I've, I've described it as a war also between you know, the um, transparent people, uh, you know, Lou and everyone, and then the, the hardcore sacks that have been running things. And then also the uh, military industrial complex, if you want to call it that. But they are just so strong that um, I really get scared that maybe that they're going to win out. Or maybe there's people within the saps and within the military that's, industrial complex that want this out now, too. I don't know. No, that, that's what, what Greer, you know, again, you know, it's, it's Stephen Greer, but a lot of stuff he did get right. He was saying that people within those programs uh, did want some of this out. This um, is an old story. Donald yeah. Kehoe in the 1950s, oh, okay, okay. 1950s, the back of this book too. talked about the, quote. well, Kehoe was talking about the secrecy group in the 50s and talking about factions back then that wanted to fight, you know, this unwise policy of secrecy and it factors in many of Kehoe's books from that period of time this is 70 years ago it's an old story it's I think it's true there's always factions yeah well, I think um what we're seeing happen nowadays is unprecedented um and again I think that the you know people people were afraid what was going to happen if they pushed this forward. There's that story, you know, of, uh, you know, Bill Clinton was inquiring about this. And at some point he, he basically said, I don't want to push on this further because I don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you have 
Lou Elizondo really took a huge gamble here, uh, not only with his career, but, you know, what could have happened to him, right? I think that he probably would have, he probably has received threats. Um, he has received threats. He said as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, yeah, life threats, like, you know, we're going to make you disappear kind of thing. I think that's what he said, basically, that someone in there, someone in the department threatened his his physical safety. Um, but I hear what you're saying, even beyond that, something even like maybe multiple people, I think it was only one person, but I don't really know. Yeah. So I think that, you know, people were concerned what would happen. And I think now that they've kind of stepped into their power and realized like they have, a, uh, you know, a capacity to facilitate change. Now that it's out there in the light, Congress is looking into it, Senate's looking into it. I don't see how you can move back from that. Um, so Again, not that it's impossible, but I, I really see this going in a movement where at least some of this stuff is going to come out. I think that at some point there it, there's a possibility that it could be slowed and trickled. But uh, I mean, I think the fundamental reality aspect of it is is actually going to come out. You, so we've talked you know, about um, uh, destroying evidence, and, and certainly if a company was seated. Um, inappropriately by the government they've destroyed that evidence that at least they got it not that not the actual ufo evidence but just the evidence that they were given something um and the and their competitors weren't you would think they would have covered their tracks on that by now yeah really good point uh you you titled this a crash retrieval conference uh program james and that's actually really uh key for what you were we were just talking about here in terms of disclosure it seems to me because the, re- the thing I, I, com- I will call the red line of disclosure is a genuine admission that the United States government has recovered alien craft, like UFOs. That, that to me, because when you, you know, you can go from, because that gives you, that's culpability, that's guilt. Like you can pretend as they're all pretending now that, well, there's something going on. We, we don't know what it is. That's not guilt. That's not cover up. We're moving into an era where you are not supposed to believe in conspiracy theories at all. That's wrong. And there is no conspiracy theory bigger, in my opinion, than the UFO cover up. Like, what's bigger than that? That's like, can you, can you imagine a future world where the government's like, no conspiracy theories, but well, yeah, the UFO one, that's true, but none of the others? Like, that's just laughable. But but if you admit that crash retrievals have happened of UFOs, there is, in my opinion, no way to avoid the implication that this has been one hell of a lifelong conspiracy to hide the truth from the people. And that's a very difficult position for the United States government to put itself in. I just don't know how yeah. they would be willing I, to do that. I, yeah. I want to say I, something about, about it being the biggest conspiracy. I agree with Richard on this. And it would, it would be like the government knows that the world is is, is a sphere, but there, it's the government's telling the entire world that it's flat, or like the government knows that space is real, but the government's telling the entire world that it's fake. I mean, our, our, the very foundation of our understanding of the universe has been completely made artificial based upon this lie. So on that account, I can't think of a bigger conspiracy theory. And I think that eventually higher fidelity data will be released. I do think that we know that Elizondo spoke about the 23 minute video that he says has unambiguous footage of UAP. And he says there's that, that the, the videos that were released up till this point, the GoFast gimbal and 
the Nimitz video are some of the least compelling videos. So, so what happens when mm -hmm. we collectively get higher fidelity data? Well, I think we'll collectively if. say if, but that's true. But, yeah. I, but if we do, I think we'll collectively say, wait a minute, do we really believe that ATIP was the only UAP program running? I think everyone will in unison say that. And on that account, I really don't see them getting away with keeping all of these other UAP programs that have been tax funded secret from, from everyone. I just, I think at that point, it's people are going to be looking into that investigative journalists, members of Congress, maybe even some people within our own government who have caught wind of these other UAP programs will start coming public and say, yeah, ATIP wasn't the only program. And I, and I think something like that would happen once we get higher fidelity data, but I could be wrong. That's a great point. I, I would agree with you, Ryan. I, and that's the real tension that we've got because there's this true, like immovable force and irresistible immovable object and the irresistible force. Like that's almost what we're getting to now. That, you know, the secrecy is a truly immovable force, but we're developed, we have developed some momentum, like more momentum that's, than we've ever had in our society to have genuine, truthful, veridical UFO data come out to the public. So yeah. the only thing and is like, I don't know if the government has the answer, like if it's within the government, like, yeah. Maybe, but it may be very difficult to get to that. Yeah. And I there, mean, there I, are special access programs, not just connected with the DOD, but with the CIA and the Department of Energy. And like, we don't even know anything about those things. Sorry, you, you go. Yeah, well, and, and speaking about conspiracy theories, I, this is the only conspiracy theory I can think of where dozens, if not hundreds of, of uh, uh, you know, US government officials and contractors have come forward saying that this is a legitimate reality. Um, the quality of, of witnesses that have come forward, even the UFOs and nukes and, and other, you know, Eric Davis and other people, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Um, but yeah, I think that like, this is our best shot. And I'm concerned if that we do not do this now, this is our last real shot, um, at least unless something completely unpredictable happens, like the phenomenon itself decides to end the whole Thing, which I, it, it seems like it's been here for thousands of years and has not done that, or maybe it did it in the past and now we don't know about it, but that's too much speculation. But I, I think this is our last, like, or, or, or this is our best shot right now. So I think that's it's incredibly important. And I think people realize that, that if you let this thing die uh, now, that, you know, it could go the way of less like OSAP, right? It could just be gone. Um, and, you know, Lou Elizondo, he, he mentioned recently that more people were going to be coming forward, you know, and I, again, I think Jim Lekaski coming forward was, was huge. Um, I, I don't think it's actually been um, acknowledged as, as great of a, a thing as it should be. I think that was a huge thing. Uh, and I hope that, you know, again, you have more people come forward um, and, you know, these possible other programs you know, George Knapp and, <laughs> and Jeremy Corbell have made some incredible statements. Um, and um, I, I'm, th I'm forgetting the gentleman's name now who, who wrote that article or on his blog about the, the other programs that are in the billions of dollars. Uh, or something? Bernard Haish, Haish? Yeah, Bernard Haish, yeah. He's an um, astronomer. And, yes. Yeah, and he's- And, and, and uh, what's- He's very close to all of those people yep. in that program. Yeah. He's very close to Putoff and Kid Green and, and those guys. Yeah, he, sp he spoke about the four UAP programs that are heavily funded and go back to the Truman administration. 
And Jeremy Corbell says he thinks that's going to come out. I mean, I don't know if they're going to come out. I don't know if they exist, but, but Jeremy Corbell said, he said his quotes, like, I, I will tell you this now and I'll probably be proven later, but there's four UAP programs in different branches of the, of the military and go, slash government, and they're going to come out at some point and I'll be proven correct. So he, he made a quote, something to that effect. Yeah. You know, even if just one of them came out in, in the near future, that, I mean, for me, I, it's hard for me to imagine that, you know, how to, how to, stop that momentum at that point. Um, you know, or if you had just one more guy on Lou Elizondo's level or, or, you know, if you had just one more guy, seriously, that's a great point. Yeah. If there was one more guy, you know, that ran one other more, one other program that was not a tip, he's like, I, you know, I was the director of this program. I think that would, I, I mean, I couldn't imagine what would happen after that. You have another thing where we're going to, you know, we almost take everything that's going on for granted in a sense where it's like, if you really stop and look back at everything that's happened in the last four years, it is really incredible. And like what Rich has said in 2010, 2011, the mindset was not there. I remember, you know, researching back then and there was not, not a sign of any, it was, it was, it was great to be a researcher, but it was really stale compared to like now where it's like, uh, you know, you don't know what's going to happen the next day. You don't know if the chief of NASA is going to give some kind of incredible statement or another pilot's going to come forward or, you know, all these things that have happened have really, I think, um, I don't even think we've on seen a monthly, on effect. a monthly basis, by the way, literally yeah, like yeah, on a monthly right. basis. And prior to December 16th, 2017, none of this stuff happened. None of these, yeah. no official came out and talked about UAP in a sobering way. That, that was like alien right. prior to that time frame. That's right. Yeah, and you're right, James. Uh, Lukaski hasn't really gone viral yet. I it mean, should have. It should yeah. have. That could be a big deal if that story catches on. We're, we're after the 180-day report, and I think um, some of the mainstream media kind of did their thing, and now they've backed off a little bit. But once things turn up again, hopefully James Lukaski will uh, will be involved. Yeah, and I, and again, with everything that's happened, I don't think we've seen the full ramifications of. I think it's still playing out. Um, you know, uh, you know, you have Avi, people like Avi Loeb coming forward, and um, you know, there's there's so much that is still, you know, beginning, you know, is going on that I, I don't think we've seen the you know the full effect of everything yet, and I think we're like in the midst of it. James, I don't know how much time we have left. I know we've gone almost two hours. I just want to say, if there's a if there's a genuine opening, a disclosure of any of this reality. You think about what this will do to our science. Like you, these objects, uh, they suddenly accelerate. Think of the Tic Tac, they can make right angle turns, they can decelerate, they can do it without a, a heat signature. Uh, so you have to ask yourself, what is the science behind what these things are doing? It's not, they're not burning fuel. So are they, are they manipulating zero point energy or the ether, what we might've called one time, or a, a super fluid medium uh, to harness mass or gravity or inertia. Like these are questions that would revolutionize uh, what we understand about going from one point to another, like it would completely turn our world inside out. And I actually believe that this is a, this is a revolutionary science that is implicit in the entire UFO phenomenon. Um, and, there are people who've made some progress on this. So I think that that would, yeah, I think that would absolutely turn things inside out and 
be it like a, a major wow moment overhaul, whether that's going to be a good or bad thing. I don't even know. Like we would have access to vastly greater amounts of, of power and ability to travel. And you might think, Oh, that'd be awesome. I'd love to do that. Or you ask, wow, should everyone in the world, like 8 billion people have this ability uh, or could they? I, I mean, I don't really know the implications of all of that. I remember yeah. the late the late Stan Friedman. Um, like, it's a weird thing about him because Stan was all about exposing at least the UFO cover-up as far as he could. He talked about Roswell, he talked about MJ-12, but he actually did not believe that everything should come out. And he particularly was worried about weaponization of UFO tech. And something he talked about quite a bit. And it's not an outrageous fear. Like there's a lot of power in this and the science is incredible. The science is world changing, but you gotta wonder, is there something that could be super ultra dangerous? Like you might trust yourself with a technology that you know would have virtually infinite amount of power but would you trust your next door neighbor or everyone in your city or everyone in your country or the world i don't know yeah well yeah and that's a, that, that's a genuine national security issue right like if there's a smaller country that is not technically geopolitically powerful has access to this and has an energy source that can just destroy all life on earth right or go who knows um, well, we're kind of dealing that with that with nukes you know nuclear uh nuclear missiles nuclear power there's a number of countries that have them and it, and it, and it does present a security risk i just wanted to say that lex freeman had on uh david fravor not too long ago and david yeah. fravor said like he said it's been 70 plus years why have they not declassified roswell and he stated that just imagine the expression on the faces of our greatest innovators like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, if they knew this technology existed and what, how it would inspire them to make new innovations. And all of that has been taken away by people that we didn't even elect into office who think they know what's best for the world instead of allowing the world to actually join in the conversation on what's best for the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's at, at this point, we're, you know, I, you're, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Um, you know, if all this information is sequestered, uh, you know, we're, we're not doing so great as it is as a global society. Um, I'm optimistic. So I'm, I see, you know, disclosure and, you know, opening to what actually is, is a, a better thing. Um, but, you know, not everybody agrees on that. I would like to be optimistic. I'd like to be more optimistic than I, I am. I, I might be the least optimistic person of the four of us here. It's possible. <laughs> Many years ago, I was, I was wondering, like, it's like let, let's, I think it was actually talking with Stan about this maybe a decade ago, uh, this fear of his that I was just mentioning. And um, I was wondering, all right, so if it's, if it's that bad, so let's say people on the inside, they are aware that this technology can be weaponized in a super, like super dangerous way. Like, let's just, I let myself think maybe that's true. So if that were true, then you could imagine the only way that they could let this come out is by creating a completely globally totalitarian system by which they monitor every single person and know, are they creating this world destroying technology? Like if that were true, I don't know that that's true, but it made me really wonder. And I thought, oh crap, like 
this is the last thing that I really want to consider. Like, is that the case? Because the last thing that I want to justify is the global totalitarian society. To me, that's like, I'll just check out of this mortal coil if that happens. I don't want to be around. But is that going to happen? And to me, my perspective is that that is exactly what is happening right now. And it just seems very convenient that we're seeing basically a completely new phase of humanity coming on board, basically some transhumanist wackadoo, you know, genetic designer babies, 5G surveillance, 24 seven, uh, black mirror, whatever. At the same time that we have a disclosure moment, like that just makes me think, is this a utopia or is this gonna be a dystopia that we're moving into? And that's part of the threat. And that's part of the threat no one wants to talk about. Like these people who want to tell you it's all love and light. Well, let me let me ask you this: If a UAP crashes in North Korea and they figure out how to back engineer it, is is the intelligence behind UAP all love and light? What if you know there's not all countries are all peaceful and loving? If if uh, the United States has made a lot of mistakes ourselves, I'm not. I'm saying we as even the United States. States. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we, we, we 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 as no, I I understand what you're, what you're what you're saying. I'm just saying that I'm just saying that that. We as a species, whether it's the United States, China, North Korea, Sweden, we're human beings. We're basically talking monkeys. So there is an inherent threat, an indirect threat at least, just by human beings acquiring this technology and being able to utilize it. Who is to say they're all, human beings are always going to make the best decisions when it comes to a potentially very destructive technology? And that's, that's a component of the potential threat conversation that some people never want to talk about because they want to create this this narrative where it's all love and light. No, it's a lot more complicated than all love and light, but that's that's all I want to leave with. Yeah. And I've thought about this over the years, mainly because of uh, Tom DeLong's words about people that are, they once they know about, you know, the, the big picture, that they're uh, super worried and their lives are never the same, obviously. And I often wonder, you know, is it, are we in the, I, I've, I've talked about it being in the golden age of uh, ignorance. And is it better to be ignorant <laughs> of some of this stuff? And, and do we know what we're asking for when we're asking for disclosure? But, you know, at the same time, and that's not even dipping into the techno technological side effects. I'm just talking about knowing that you could be maybe abducted at any time and there's nothing you could do about it. How horrible would that be for the world to know? But um, at the same time, uh, it's not up to other people to hold this stuff back from the rest of humanity. You know, um, we know about a lot of threats to us, to ourselves, um, and, 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 it's, and we deserve to know the truth. So we got to put on our big boy pants, and no matter how bad and how horrible this stuff is, we at least need to uh, know it's there, and that's what we deserve as humans. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I think that, I agree with that. I mean, our, our greatest way forward is going to be transparency. Um, because, yeah, I mean... I, I like that uh, the, the golden age of ignorance. That's <laughs> that's a really good one. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, even if you think on a macro uh, on a microcosm, I mean, you know, it's better. I think that people are informed and can make informed decisions. Um, and again, the question: Who has the right to to sequester that kind of fundamental truth? It's tyranny. It's basically tyranny. Let's call it what it is. They're holding back information. They're not uh, involving people that are, are, in, are within the chain of command. They're not involving our legislators, our representatives. So it's tyrannical. The government has decided, or components of the government, com I don't know how it works, but certain people 
potentially, I don't know for certain, but it appears certain people decided that they're just going to hold back the information and they don't really care about what the American public wants, what what their opinion is. So they're basically doing it backwards because the government is designed to serve the people, not the other way around. And they're not serving the people, they're serving themselves. And that's that's definition, that's by definition tyranny. Yeah. Yep. Oh, well, this has been a, uh, a very awesome panel, guys. It's getting a little late. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I got, yeah, I got to end up going to work. Yeah, um, it's, it's been a long night. A long no, but it's crash, been awesome, man. It's been a long crash retrieval night. <laughs> yeah. Great conversation. I enjoyed it very much with you guys. Yeah. Likewise. So, um, yeah, hopefully we can do this again. And, uh, you know, maybe we can do Abduct- this again. Abduction week. week. Abduction week. Oh, man. I was going to say contact week. You can fit well, abduction into the contact. We can put them under the same umbrella because they are contact, whether it's yeah. desired or undesirable. Yeah. I, yeah. I would love to do that. So uh, I think we should reconvene. Uh, sometime in the near future um so again thank you so much guys for being here sounds good and uh let's let's sign off and i'll see all you guys soon thank you for organizing yeah thanks for organizing this i enjoyed it thank you thank you for everyone giving their opinion and it was a it was a good time thank you all right take care guys